You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 39. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, example, discussion, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. And follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, welcome to Coding Blocks. I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael OneDrive. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Yes. Uh, Do we want to explain that, or are we just going to let it go? If you, if well, you, I was going to explain it in a minute, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get to it. I'll, I'll tease all it. All right. This episode is sponsored by Infragistics. Use Infragistics for your enterprise mobilization and modernization. For business users and IT organizations, you can deliver exceptional user experiences to your customers through Infragistics mobile enterprise solutions for team collaboration and BI dashboarding. With advanced integration with major mobile device managers, extensibility frameworks for full customization, and embedding and white labeling options, Infragistics enterprise mobility solutions are designed to fit your enterprise or OEM software needs. Go to www.infragistics.com today and download your free 30-day trial. Okay, so we got to say this. Man, you guys are awesome. The reviews this time have been amazing. Yeah, truly. Like, both in content and the number of them. Oh, 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 the quantity of them has been amazing. I'm going to just take a stab at reading through these names and... If I mess up your username, uh, forgive me now, but I'm, I'm going to do what I can here. So we have ZZZZ Burger 2016, Rick Pack. Uh, oh, I'm already messing up now. Uh, Erebor? Maybe. <laughs> Setter MJD, DevSec. And Zuza? Yeah, that's pretty good. Andrew W. Lane, P. Right 08. Wilson Drummer, Starchild 2, Doves, Katie Ann Riley, uh, Caney Shammy. Yep. Uh, what would that be? Terry times 512 or Terry X 512? 510. 510. I'm sorry, 510. Why am I saying 512? <laughs> um, <laughs> what would that next one be? Derek Kane. Yep. Um, S2Q89. Thank you. Ozzy Steve. Uh, I don't know how to say Danny's last name. Allegreza. There you go. With all the hard ones. Bert, 1178. Alan. Nalumb. Okay. Hakash. Uh, <laughs> Akash. Okay. LA Medical Delivery. P-Ride 08. Jason Wyman. Uh, Wyman. Jim W. And Michael C. Yeah. Oh. I'm assuming that one's Michael. I've never, I've never seen that spelling, but that's an interesting spelling. But oh my god! And hey, by the way, if anyone was paying attention there as the names were being called out, P right W eight or uh, P right O eight. I said that one twice. Yeah, it was in Stitcher and iTunes. Yeah, thank you, huge thank shout you, out, Paul Wright. And seriously, all of you guys that, that took the time to come over here, this, I mean, super appreciated. It helps us. 
it's like the biggest payback that you guys can give us. I know that we've said that before, but it really is. It, it brings such a smile. It, it is a huge joy, and it really does help us out. I, I mean, and by the way, we cracked 100 reviews in the U.S. Like, right. I, I think we all kind of did cartwheels. I mean, yeah. And we're pretty small guys, so it was kind of entertaining <laughs> to watch us all do that. I don't know about the small part, but yeah. yeah. The earth guys. was shaking. So, yeah, seriously, thank you so very much for taking the time and doing that. And and for all you guys, most of you have come joined us on Slack as well. So Right. You know, so, you know, if you haven't already joined us over at Slack, head over to codingblocks.slack.com. Well, actually, I'll take that back. We still have to find some time and set up a, a more automated way to do this, but right now we don't. So... What we need you to do is if you would like to join in on the fun at, at, at codingblocks.slack.com, then what we need from you is an email address. You can either DM it to us on Twitter or you can email it to us at comments at codingblocks.net. And then with that email address, we can send you an invite. Yep. Or if you can't even remember the comments of coding blocks, you can always go up to the site and use the contact form. Some people have done that as well. But we do need an email and it, one other thing, too, just for the people that have joined, I've noticed like a lot of people will hit that general, the, the hashtag general. Don't forget, you can go join the other channels, too. Like we have a dev talk channel. We yep. have a podcast channel. We have random, which is where gaming. We have truly random music to code to. And, and people seriously like some of these folks like Dre, he, Dre Young. He's been amazing on there. He's dropped a ton of of interesting stuff. Um Gustav has been amazing. Stefan has been awesome. Like we we've really had a lot of great Jason. interaction. Jason. So I mean, and and that's not to leave out anybody else who's been who's been interacting. But there have been a lot of great tips dropped on there, and just really useful information. And then a lot of fun too, right? Like when somebody needs a break. So come join us. I mean, or it, it's a blast. If if you'd like to know why I am now now Michael OneDrive <laughs> instead of Michael Outlaw. You could see my meltdown last <laughs> week. I think it was like Thursday or Friday of last week. I think it was Friday of last week. Anyone who's ever used OneDrive <laughs> knows my pain because it's such a nice thing when it works, you know, because your documents are just synchronized everywhere and you don't have to worry about stuff, right? Don't change your password. <laughs> because as soon as you change your password it is so frustrating uh, and that's when everything like OneDrive just falls on its face and doesn't know what to do and it's so confused oh my god you change your password so yeah I, I completely ha melted down on Friday and it was almost like, like I joked around about I should create a comic book or a comic strip <laughs> You know, and and I would title it Michael versus OneDrive, and you yeah. know in that thread I had joked about, hey, I should just change my name to Michael OneDrive. Yeah, there was definitely some dialogue back and forth there between you and uh, OneDrive for a while. <laughs> oh my god, I can read some of it if you'd like, but uh, uh, yeah. this will probably be a long enough episode already, so we'll we'll save that for maybe the next one. But yeah, the, I mean, there's some great great conversations, even monologues, even that happen over there. You know, uh, so what's up? What's up next? We got we got a T-shirt giveaway that we oh, promised yeah. like three months ago, I think. Yeah. So so we forgot in when we recorded episode thirty eight about the T-shirt giveaway that 
we had mentioned in episode 37. So we remembered it this time. And the winner is... Manrique or Manrique. I'm not sure. Logan. So congratulations. You You will get a nice pre-worn t-shirt. Grayish. Yes. And so we'll definitely be contacting you over on Discuss on episode 37 in order to uh, get some information from you so that we can ship that out. And congratulations. Yeah. And, uh, you know, also on, well, actually, no, this one didn't come from Slack. We got a tweet about this one. So, you know, we've done surveys on various episodes. Sometimes we're better about remembering to do a survey than other times. (laughs) And uh, I would like to say, at least in the last couple episodes, we've been pretty good about remembering to, you know, have some fun with it and do it. But this time we actually got a tweet from uh, Tired of the Carp. And uh, she says, hey, Coding Blocks, how about some girl power for your next survey? Princess rap battle, right? (laughs) So she sent us a link to a YouTube video. We'll include that as the survey. Um, How do you pronounce that name again, Alan? It was uh, from Lord of the Rings. No? Oh, Galadriel. Galadriel. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Versus Leia. See, I'm horrible with names. It's not just your name, dear <laughs> listener. It's everyone's name. I can't even pronounce this guy in front of me. Is Alun? Alun? Ayan? <laughs> if you say it in Spanish, it's actually Ayan. So, you know. Okay. Oh. Yeah. There well, you go. Now I'm going to be all confused. There it is. Hey, Ayan. Well, okay. Yes. Well, so, we, uh, yeah. We'll have a link to the video and, and uh, we'll have a poll there. But it's fantastic. And I don't. should we say which which one we prefer? Hmm. Now, let's no, let's the next not. Serve, let's yeah, 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 yeah. Results. Okay. But uh, I will say. Yeah. Oh, okay. Were you about to say? Uh, I will say though that um, you know, the this is marked with some explicit language. You know, when you see this video, you know, just the page alone, it it says that it's explicit. So, you know, if you're in a work environment, maybe you don't want to watch it, or if you're okay with watching it, then I would definitely suggest some headphones. But you know, it's uh, all in good fun. And so, wait, what happened with the results from the last survey, the puddle? Oh, we'll get to that later. What? Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Well, that's yeah. convenient. Yeah. 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 You hoping we're going to forget Outlaw? I think Outlaw's climbing around the puddle right now. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I, I will get around <laughs> to it when I get on the other side of the puddle. <laughs> All right. So what are we talking about tonight? How to be well, uh, an intermediate programmer? All right. Yep, we're continuing on with the book we were talking about last time, How to Be an uh, Intermediate Programmer. Robert and, uh, L. Reed's book. Yeah, it's hard to even really call it a book. It's, uh, it's a, it is a book. Oh, well, it's a lot yeah. of things. I think we referred and, uh, to it as an essay last comment. time. Yep. I'm sorry. Uh, and Well, it's an essay too, I think. Uh, it's kind of, you know, this, the world hasn't caught up yet with uh, all this technology. <laughs> well, but, uh, he <laughs> actually did leave a comment for us uh, linking to the GitHub page where you can actually submit pull requests and uh, bugs. I was referring to some of the lag though because there have been a couple of times where I've like mistakenly over, you know, talked over you and I wasn't trying to, but yeah, yeah. video conversations. It is interesting. Oh, yeah, it though. happens. It, what, what does the world come to where you have a pull request for a book? That's really yeah. interesting, right? It, it, it's quite awesome. It, yeah, it's actually pretty smart if you think about it. You have all the editors in the world now. That means you're probably denying a lot of pull requests, but it is pretty interesting. So, um, I actually went through the history and uh, I was surprised to see how many um, little small edits there were for like um, you know grammar consistency stuff like that. So it's interesting to see just how many editors there were. Yeah. 
Well, there was a a similar going back to our Slack channel conversations for a moment. Like, there's all kinds of great resources that are getting dumped in there, man. Like, it, there's really some awesome conversations that are happening. And uh, one of them I'd completely forgotten about this this author. Um, it's kind of similar to what we're talking about tonight with the Robert L. Reed, the fact that it being now a book in GitHub. But uh, another author, what was his name? I'm trying to remember. He has his books posted on GitHub as well, and he was actually a presenter at um, this year's Connect JS that we were at. Um, what was his name? I can't remember. Uh, Kyle Simpson. Very yeah. cool. Okay. So, and and you know, one of the you know members of the Slack team, you know. Threw that threw that link out there, and I had totally forgotten about it until I saw it, and then I was like, "Oh yeah, I remember." It was, it was this whole series about uh, you don't know JavaScript, and it was you know scope and closures and type and grammar and async and performance. And at the Connect JS, where, I'm trying to remember if you attended that session with me, Alan. I think you did, but he talked specifically, if I remember right, it was about promises and asynchronous programming, and it was a really good. I didn't go to Connect JS this year. Oh, you didn't? No, because I was busy. <laughs> I, I, I was I was working like ninety uh, hours a day. Right. Okay, I remember. Like I remember who was there with me now. Yeah. Hashtag lame. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. All right. Well, but, let's go ahead and dive on in. Let's uh, let's hit part two of this three part series on how to be a programmer, an intermediate programmer, an intermediate programmer. This go around. So. The first section is personal skills, and the very first part is how to stay motivated. And I like this section a lot because there was a lot of this stuff that I thought hit home, it, for me especially, and I know a lot of other developers. And one of the things that I read in here that I really liked was, if programmers are asked to do something that is not beautiful, useful, or nifty, they will have low morale. That is so incredibly true. Yeah, I, a lot of people will say, oh, it's just a job. I program, I program, whatever. But if you don't feel like passionate about what you're working on as a developer, it, it can really drag you down and, and it can, it can kind of kill your, not just your morale, but your productivity as well. You know, I, so that was a great line, but, and I don't necessarily disagree with it, but the only reason why I didn't in maybe hit home with me as much as it did for you though. It's cause I was thinking like, well, you could be working in a technology stack and just be completely bored and you don't care how useful it is or how beautiful it is. Like whatever you've been asked to create, if you're bored with that tech stack, you're still bored with it. So the one that did hit home with me in this section was looking for new opportunities to apply new techniques and languages and technologies. Yeah. That one hit hit more home because like you could you okay, let's take C sharp for example. We've all done C sharp. <clears throat> you could be working in C sharp and just get kind of bored with it. What? And then yeah, <laughs> it could happen. Crazy, right? But then all of a sudden you come up with you learn some new pattern, maybe maybe something finally lights a fire under you and you start using dependency injection, right? Uh as an example. And now all of a sudden you get maybe, you know, renewed interest, right, in it. That's an example. And I, and I, I liked that one. I liked that yeah, part the, of his point that he was making. 
the first bullet point he has right here is use C sharp for the job. <laughs> he does. Oh, oh, oh you're right. Um, you know, I'm sorry. It says use the best language, and I just kind of substituted there. My bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Awesome. Right. You know what's funny though? Uh, on this topic, one thing that has really been driving me crazy lately is the amount of crud type stuff, like literally just boilerplate code oh. that you write day to day. Like, honestly, <laughs> that's th- rest programming right there, dude. Oh, man. Like, there are times that I look at it and I seriously will stop doing what I'm doing and write something to write it for me because I can't take it any longer. See, I, I would almost want to say like, well, I kind of want to say, you know, you're doing it right. If that's what you're doing is a lot of crud because then you know that you're using your a rest pattern. correctly. Right. right. And until we were recently showed that video on GraphQL, and then it's kind of like, well, maybe. Oh, not. dude, don't get me started on GraphQL. This yeah. episode will go five hours. <laughs> yeah, I think I think some of the uh, guys in the Slack channel already uh, got a taste for that. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of ridiculous, but um, did hey, one. go ahead, Joe? Did you find anything else in here that you thought was like pretty pretty relevant? Yeah, uh, this is just kind of a fun counterpoint, but it's actual. It's it's a quote from the article, but uh, just kind of a little reminder here that there is a lot of money to be made doing ugly, stupid, and boring stuff. So, um, you know, if you're greedy or you want to take a little break from fun stuff, then uh, look at SharePoint. You can do some of that too. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, please don't leave us, listeners. Uh, any of you that are SharePoint experts. Uh, one thing that I did think was pretty interesting here was when you when you go through this section like it's all about learning and doing things that you're interested in one point that i thought was great and this is kind of why we did the podcast is try to teach people something too while you're working because it renews an interest in what you're working on because as so as you see somebody else get excited about it it's easy for you to get excited about it again well it kind of goes hand in hand with the example that i gave earlier about a new technique because he's he also says in that same one about you know learn something try to learn something right and in the example i gave you maybe you're trying to learn using dependency injection right and then uh the one last piece in here for me that i thought was really good was when they talk about it you know we have these ticketing systems and all these things where you can like track the number of bugs that you bring down but for a developer what does that mean right like we've all been in systems where it starts out you had 20 bugs and then as more people are using the system, you're knocking out two or three a day, but it's growing at 10 a day, and you're just, you feel like you're kind of buried. But what can be motivating is seeing how it impacts the customer, right? So not how many bugs did you finish, but of the bugs that you completed, what was the actual impact on the customer? Like, how did they receive those changes? Well, I can tell you from my own personal experience working on e-commerce sites, Whenever I could equate those changes into dollars, oh, it's amazing, right? That was highly motivating, right? I don't care how small the change was, but if you could contribute that change back to here's the dollar amount that changed per month or week or whatever you know, metric you choose to use, I found that to be awesome. Oh, it's really cool. Like when you make when you make a change that took you an hour, and all of a sudden your company's making fifty thousand extra in revenue a month, you're like. Well, that's killer, right? Like I did that. Right. So, but it, it's it's important for you as a developer to know what kind of motivates you, so that you know those kind of things that you need to be aware of. And as a manager, it's it's very important to to bring those things to light, right? So, I, I, although I will say though, when you were talking about you know the the number of bugs and everything, I really thought that where you were going with this was you know the the t shirt 
about the 99 little bugs on the wall, 99 little bugs. Take pass one down, down, pass it around, 103 100. little bugs on the wall. <laughs> right? I really thought that's where we were going. Uh, that's so true. It's, it's unfortunate, but it's true. <laughs> All right. So let's move on. So how to be widely trusted. Well, for starters, you don't have a name like Outlaw. That's not going to help. <laughs> you need to have a name like Michael Goodguy. Or, or, or Jay-Z. An Empire State Word. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. Well, I prefer to build trust by being responsive and informative to those outside my department or team. That Dude, that is the same one that I highlighted. Same here, man. Same it, here. It's so it. important. Yeah. How many yeah. people have you known in your career that are like, so it, it, I've, I've definitely had bosses' bosses in the past that are extremely demanding, and everybody's like, oh, you don't want to be on his radar. And I'm like, what? That's crazy talk. No, I do want to be on his radar because my boss can't really do, and and I'm not trying to play down what your boss can do for you, but guess what, people? The ones that are making the decisions are up above their level, right? Like, your boss can't just go hand out raises willy-nilly, right? And usually it's one or two up the chain that can build relationships with people in that line as well as outside of that department. And going along the lines of that goodwill, though, there was another one that I really liked that was um, you know, not pretending to know something you don't. So if someone asks you something, don't try to give them, you know, don't don't fake it necessarily. You're like Know when to say, you know, well, I, I don't know this right now, but if you give me some time, I can figure this out or I can research this or whatever, right? But also know, like, if there's going to be times where... I'll never be able to figure this out. Then I should be honest about that too. Yep. Right. And also don't become the, the person that's taken advantage of, right? Because some people will abuse these relationships. If they know they've got an open line to you and they're like, Hey man, can, can you get me this? You know, your knee jerk reaction is you want to make somebody happy. You're going to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll get that to you. And then it starts becoming a, a habitual type thing. You know, you you kind of have to be aware of that stuff too. So, you know, you, you need to set boundaries. Yes, you want to build some goodwill, but you also don't want to be get, that guy that's slipping on his own work because you're trying to do something for everybody, right? So, agreed. All right. Uh, the next section I thought was really good. It was about um, trade offs between time and space. And this is getting back to more programmery type of stuff and uh, basically talks about. Um, how you can often uh, trade off memory for CPU cycles. So you can do something, you know, you can cache data, for example, in memory to save processing cycles. Or alternatively, you could save memory by recomputing values. And uh, this is a nice big section, I thought. Yeah, he even had a statement that said something about, you know, for a truly intermediate programmer, you can't be a good one without knowing the basic computational complexity theory. And by that, he means you don't have to go deep into big O notation, which, by the way, if you're trying to get hired at some of the big firm or big companies like Amazon, Google, Microsoft, you are going to need to know that. So you might as well, you know, suck it up and do it. But you at least need to know what constant time logarithms are going to be or n log n or n squared, so quadratic type things. Because if you don't know these, then that means you probably don't even know when you're doing something bad, right? Yeah, and uh, just as a refresher, 
we've talked about this as a tip before, but uh, if you need a refresher in Big O complexity, head over to BigOCheatSheet.com. And uh, there's a nice little chart there that has a graph of all of the, uh, or at least, you know, a lot of the uh, big O notations um, where you can visually see from a complexity point of view what's what. Yeah, and I don't know, I don't remember if this was the section they talked about it, but um, so there was a quote in here somewhere, I'm sure we'll come across it, that basically talked about um, all you really need to do is just kind of um, know your algorithms and know your data structures. And I think that kind of ties into this um, so there yeah, totally i mean like if if you don't understand the difference between like a hash and an array and what the lookup complexities would be and the time taken and all that kind of stuff you might be making poor decisions that you could vastly improve with very little code changes right so yeah th- those are pretty well i mean he makes things. the point of saying that uh you know part part of this is knowing like well am i even going to make a is what I'm trying to correct here even going to make a difference in the performance, right? So if you already don't understand, you know, the big O notation, like maybe you don't know big O notation, but if you at least can look at the code and understand like, okay, well, because this loop is inside of that loop, then every time it's going to get executed, it's going to cost me more. Like if you can at least, you know, conceptually understand that that's going to cost you more effort, right? Even if you don't know which one of the big O's that's going to be, then, you know, you can start to see like where your improvements are going to matter the most, right? Um, you know, before you even make those changes, because even if you, you know, any of those changes that you make, you're hoping that it's going to in- include a performance gain, but it's definitely going to include a test burden. Right. So you need to be aware of that, right? Yeah, I like that phrase, test burden. Yeah, it, I mean, there was even like, we've talked about caches in the past before, right? Like if you start caching data locally, you have a database, then you have some tier that caches data. Okay, that's great because you have a faster access to it, but now you have to have more complex logic around it, right? You can't just go get it every time. Now you need to know when do you need to flush this thing out, you know. Like there there's any time you start trading these things off, the space versus the complexity, you're always looking at, okay, is is this does the benefit outweigh one way or the other, you know? And and it's always it's an interesting trade off, and a lot of times, you know, sometimes you'll make these things in a vacuum because it's like, well, we need to do this, and so you end up doing it, and you might overcomplicate your code, or you might even cause performance problems. So, you know, it can be hard to see sometimes when, especially when you're dealing with a lot of frameworks. You know, it's it can be hard to see what's going on exactly and where your problems are, which I guess kind of leads into the next section, which how is how to stress test. Yes. He says stress testing is fun. Yeah. <laughs> I, I read that as testing is stressful. <laughs> oh, wait. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. Uh, so this guy, Robert Reed, I think I would like hanging out with him, but uh, I am not him and he is not I. <laughs> oh, man. Well, yeah, I've uh, I've messed around with some stress testing tools before, and yeah, I just found it kind of frustrating to set the stuff, and then you kind of you know start it running and go to lunch, come back, figure out the server died, or it's, you know something, somebody restarted something because you were um, you know messing up what they were working on or whatever. So it's just always been an exercise in frustration for me. Yeah, well, I didn't necessarily view it as fun, like he wrote here, more as I just viewed it as like a a necessary evil. Maybe yeah, you'd be the that's best way exactly to say it. Like, what I was like, thinking. It's not 
something entertaining to do, but it's like, all right, well, I gotta set this up. I mean, I guess for performance nuts, it, it it is a little bit fun because the way that he put it is, it's when you're running something, and and all of a sudden your performance just takes a nosedive. That's what he calls hitting the wall, right? And so doing a stress test is an artificial way to find where that wall is. And then you do what you can to try and move it further back, right? So that was the whole point of what a stress test was, was just so you can find where these, where basically it does take that nosedive. So I get it, but the problem is, is it can be, depending on the test suites you're using, it's fairly complex, right? Because trying to simulate, if you are an e-commerce site, you know, simulating the same click-throughs on the same pages, you know, a hundred times concurrently doesn't give you true life interactions, right? So you have to mold these these types of tests so that you more mimic what real life interaction is. Well, I guess this is part of the thing too, where I, you know, kind of begrudgingly said it like that was that when I think of stress testing like this, I'm thinking of these are integration tests. These are not unit tests. Right. So if we go back to our conversation about what's a unit test, what's an integration test, right? Integration tests are touching, you know, dependencies, whereas unit tests are not. They're single isolated, you know, tests that can run independently of one another in any order and there's no dependency on other stuff, right? Not even file systems. Right. So when I think of stress tests, I think of integration tests, and that's where it becomes a hassle because now it's like Oh crap, we got to have a network to set up just like this and a database server that's scaled out just like this. Like, you know, if we're trying to test and you know, unless you have the ability to maybe you have the ability to stress test your soon to become production environment beforehand, then fine. But, you know, if you have if you were tasked with building out a replica of your your production environment just to stress test something to see like, okay, well what's the maximum that this thing can take that can be a real headache chef like, or puppet right yeah man <laughs> you want something that'll spin it up i mean I, I would imagine somebody like netflix has done this to a t right but they've got all the tools built to do it because that's what their their end game is they need to be able to replicate those well, things. well they but, certainly didn't start out with those tools right I mean, going back to like an mvp kind of process right yep and so you know, yeah. Netflix didn't make their make their name for themselves because of their testing ability. <laughs> True that. I get all my good testing stuff from there. But yep. No, he does make a funny, good point. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Joe. Go ahead. Uh, all right, sure. Yeah. So I was just thinking um, when I think about stress testing, I still think very much in terms of like requests per second and you know how the database server is doing and uh, the application server. But I've never really used a tool that measured like browser performance, which is becoming more and more important when you're working with spas. And that's basically, you know, how sluggish is my UI behaving and how usable is this? And I'm sure there's tools out there. I just did a quick Google search and I saw a couple, but I just thought that was kind of interesting, um, at least to, to think of my own bias in this, in this kind of testing. Because not everybody's running a Core i7 with 16 gigs of RAM. That's right. So it's running. If it's running crappy on my computer, then uh, we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, he does make a good point here, though. That uh, you know, the plan for stress testing should be done early in the process. And you know, going back to my point, if your stress testing plan is to test a mock production environment, then yeah, you definitely got to get started sooner rather than later to just start 
building that thing out. Even if you're going to have it to where like some tools can spin up like EC2 instances dynamically, right? But those instances are just going to be the clients making the request. That's not necessarily going to be like your database infrastructure, for example, or right. your app servers, right? So, you know, you still might have to set those up. Even if you're setting them up to where they do scale automatically, that's still time spent on configuration, right? For those of you who don't know what EC2 is, it's AW- Amazon's AWS. It's their Elastic, Elastic Compute yeah. platform. It's where you can spin up a virtual machine. So uh, hopefully we didn't lose anybody on that. Uh, yep, and we totally didn't even mention Azure because we are not Microsoft snobs. <laughs> <laughs> FYI. Actually, I would love to be an Azure snob, but man, it is a fairly high barrier well, it's cost no more, of entry. No more than the others, though. Is it not? No. It seems like. They have minute-by-minute minute pricing, which is nice for uh, messing That's around. That's kind of nice. Yeah. And plus, like, if you're, uh, I mean, if we're talking strictly to Microsoft developers, like, if you have... Um, uh, BizSpark. Uh, uh, well, I was going to say a subscription. Uh, like, a, yeah. whether it be the new cloud-based subscription that you could get, where you pay a monthly fee to get your and or if you have the more traditional MSDN subscription those come with free monthly hours of um Azure time. Yeah, it's worth so. playing with. If you haven't messed with cloud services before, like it opens up a whole new world of thinking. It's yeah. pretty cool stuff. So, you know, my only point being is that um Azure is no more expensive than Google compute or Amazon and you know, if you are a Microsoft developer, then Microsoft is at least trying to, you know, incentivize you to come in and play, right? Well, I, I was thinking of it more like the, uh, you know, the first one's free kind of, you know. Okay, yeah. Cool. <laughs> they, they're yeah. trying to rope you in, right? Which is fine. I mean, they're starting to do that with Visual Studio as well. Visual Studio Community uh, 2015 is free. If if you're just an individual developer, you want to go play with stuff, you have a free IDE that's amazing. So. Now, here's another point, though, that he makes in the stress testing section, which was that... Uh, you know, if you do stress test this application, right, and you find where's that 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 upper limit, where's that wall, that maximum where things are just going to go sideways if it goes, if one more request comes in, right, it just can't handle it. And um, he makes the point that uh, doing that may not actually help your application and that depending on the situation, it may actually hurt the application performance. On lower loads, right? <laughs> right, yeah. right. So, so if you if you're designing this thing to scale up to handling you know a billion concurrent requests, but in reality you're going to have no more than one or two, then you could be taking a hit on a lot of overhead that you're not going to ever use or take advantage of. But by God, when you turn into Instagram, you'll be ready for it. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> Uh, I also oh. wanted to say that um, if you don't have a production environment that's similar or a staging environment that's similar to production, then uh, you should go check out our episode on the five, the twelve factor app. And uh, it's you know it's just a it is a red flag. It's you know it means something that you don't have uh, the exact setup that you're able to test. So if you're not able to do stress testing for whatever reason, then uh, you have some things to think about. Yeah, that's a great point. Great point. All right, moving along. How to balance brevity and abstraction. Well, our episodes do not adhere to that. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say, like, I can't actually comment on this section at all. Dude, this I, this one's actually very... This is one that I'm a little bit passionate about. 
because I've definitely known coders that want to write the most elegant code on the planet, and they want to make it scalable to the nth degree. And I'm like, dude, we got 10 users. Why are you looking at me? I'm not looking at you. Uh, I'm looking at, uh, uh, I don't know. Actually, you're looking at who? Who are you looking at? Man, I'm looking at my Kindle. So Yeah, you better be looking at that Kindle. But, but no, seriously, like that's, it's one of the things that frustrates me. And I, and I struggle with it myself too sometimes, right? Like you sit there and you're like, oh man, I could totally make this thing to where like, I'd never even have to write another line of code after I get done with these 5 million lines of code that I need to do to make this happen. But the the whole thing of getting to the point where you have 20 layers of abstraction is almost more of a hindrance than having a, a a fairly concise set of code that may not be all that gorgeous and object-oriented or whatever, but it's easy to maintain, and it's easy to see what's going on, right? Like So there is a balance there, and so many people jump on one side of the line or the other and never hit right down the middle. There was a a quote, Joe, maybe you can help me out here. I think it's an Uncle Bob quote where uh, it's something along the lines of um, abstraction can help anything except solve abstraction, something like that. Do you know what I'm talking about? What is that? Yeah. But you know what this reminds me of, this section? It reminded me of the episode we recorded almost two years ago now. Right after we had done the solid episode, where Joe came back, he's like, "Yeah, man, I tried to write a solid app, and all I oh, have man, is interfaces and abstract." You just classes. took away my next joke. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, because because there was this one line in here that that was just uh, one sign of this is if you create classes that don't really contain any code and don't really do anything except to serve except to serve to ah, except serve to abstract something, and I read that and I was like. Well, that's solid. That's so, totally solid. I mean, you have to, right? You got to do that. No, <laughs> you're saying don't don't do solid, man. What uh, we we uh, we all know a guy named Will, and I'll never forget. Like this dude's, a, he's he's a very strong, strong software engineer in every sense of the word. Yeah, every sense. Like the dude could bench press probably 400 pounds, and on top of that, he's a good coder. But I'll never forget, there was one day, like, you see the status on his instant message profile. Something, what, what was it? Something along the lines of, too much abstraction causes confusion or something oh, right, like that. Right. <laughs> and, it, and you could tell that the dude was just defeated in layers of interfaces and abstract classes and more interfaces. And it's so true. Well, yeah, he, he points this out as a form of speculative programming. Totally. Right, yep. where you're just assuming that all this abstraction is going to be necessary, and you know, really, there's a strong possibility that whatever you're working on is the first time that it's ever been used. Like, you don't even know how it's going to be used yet. Mm-hmm. You don't even know how other developers are going to start to use this yet. So, you have the best of intentions and want to make this thing just amazingly portable and and configurable or whatever, like you know, to where it could fit any need. But you kind of don't know what those real-world use cases are yet. So maybe tame it down a little bit. And, and what you said, he calls it speculative code. About a paragraph down from that, he writes, you should not produce much speculative code, right? And it is so true. And there was somewhere in here, and I didn't highlight it, but he even said something to the effect of, and I do agree with this, if you're writing some sort of public API, you know, you're a company that's providing a software product, a software as a service or something, and you're giving a public API. 
yes, do those things that abstract and, and and you might create a little bit more abstraction there because you're you're giving it to the public to consume. If it's an internal app, like do you really need those thirty layers of separation? Right? Like Yagni. Well Yes, yes, <laughs> Yagni. You ain't gonna need it. Well, I, I did kind of find this humorous though, because this being the, the brevity and abstraction section, right? And you know, there was this one line in here where he mentioned that portability poses a similar problem. And I don't know why it was that portability triggered this thought in my mind, but immediately anyone you guys care to take a guess what might have popped into my head? Portability. Java? There you go. (laughs) Java popped into my head because like as soon as I read that, this whole section about brevity and abstraction in like spring, Mm -hmm. for example, like, yeah, I mean, it it was just like, well, I don't know if he's a Java programmer. Maybe he, maybe that's where he was thinking of. I I don't know. Yeah. I mean, if you start trying to work cross platform, I mean, we even had something come up on Slack today where uh, uh, I think Juggernaut brought up uh, React Native. Oh, right. He's like, is it true that you actually have to code some of the UI in the in the native code for the platform? And I was like, yeah, probably so. And so, yeah, I mean, if you're going to try and make something ultra portable, you're going to have a bigger code base to deal with. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely portability can uh, bring about some some craziness into your application. So let's move on to how to learn new skills. That's probably the best skill you could have, right? The ability to learn new skills quickly. I mean, that's what Einstein said is the reason why we go to college, right? <laughs> is to learn how to learn. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that, that would be my superpower. I think we, that's one of the things we were talking about in the Slack channels. Uh, what superpower would you want? I think lear- like knowing how to learn things quickly. Wait, lear- be, uh, superpower that you would want or superpower that you have? Oh, uh, want. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, one thing that I liked about what he said in here, and I don't know if I highlighted it, this is a pretty long section, was just going to a course or or a uh, some sort of conference where you learn about something or watching a video or or even reading a book. That's not good enough. If you're trying to actually learn a skill, you need to put yourself in it and do it, right? And that is so incredibly true. I mean... Even doing the smallest amount of code can drive home a point better than watching five hours of a video. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Well, as soon as you start trying to like put something into into motion on your own for that first time, right? There's there's going to be huge learning curves. Sometimes you know not as huge as others, but yeah, it, that that effort will definitely stick with you, right? And and I liked that he had this statement in here about you know how important it is to learn. Uh, and how fun it is to learn new skills and that, you know, companies should embrace this because it would boost morale, like letting your, encouraging your employees to learn new things, right. Would help boost morale within the company. Right. And I thought that was a great point. And, and to take it a step further, not only would it boost morale, you would bring new knowledge in, which could help everybody out. Right. I mean, that's, it really is kind of a, a fine point that is glossed over too many places. But, yeah. Uh, one thing that I did like is they say take a small project. Even if it's not something you're super passionate about, take a little tiny small project. Like you did the uh, – when you were trying to learn Angular, you did the whole, you know, the All review right. thing, right? 
if you take something that that you can actually apply, it will help so much. But if you guys, well, well this goes back. Sorry to go interrupt, ahead. but um, I think we've discussed something similar to this though, where like, especially as it relates to this show, like going behind the scenes, getting a little meta here for a moment. Um, there have been times where like we'll want to either come up with some kind of a code example to illustrate whatever it is that we're talking about in the show, or it, it could even be in a, in a blog post that we're going to write separately. And sometimes it's just coming up with like, well, what's that use case for right. that thing. Right. And, and so sometimes, you know, that part of it can be, you know, difficult just coming up with that, with that. But if you, once you are, you come up with some stupid, it doesn't have to be extreme. It could just right. be some stupid little example and then once you decide, okay, fine, this is what I'm going to settle on, then you can focus trying to learn that technology and apply it to that, and then just keep iterating on it and making it bigger and bigger and bigger. Yep. You, you always know? grow it. I mean, you can't start off huge because you'll never make any traction. This this section did remind me of something. You guys ever gone to, and I'm sure we all have, you've gone to those conferences where you watch some dude showing you like the latest Visual Studio or, or something else, and they're like, watch this, guys. I can build an application in 10 minutes Uh, and then they'll blow through it and you'll be like, Oh my God. And then you go home and try and do it. And like three hours later, you're like, man, how long did this dude rehearse for this? And how many things did he, you know, slide by that he knew were problematic because you get there and you're like, this totally isn't real. He knew what to click, what not Uh to click. Yeah, yeah. What what options were required? And the order to do it in, right? Like, right. oh, if you do this thing before this, it'll totally not work. I've always, like, whenever I see those kind of things, though, I guess maybe I've just gotten so burnt by that <laughs> that every time I see it, just instinctively, whether I in, mean to or not, and I'm not trying to be rude to the person, but I immediately think, okay, this is smoke and mirrors. Right. It feels like that. <laughs> It, it, it is frustrating because I've never been able to replicate that ever. Yeah, Ruby did the uh, build a blog in ten minutes, and the node was like write a web server in two seconds. Like, what are we gonna what are we gonna do next? <laughs> right, because those things are no longer impressive. Uh, isn't that crazy? Think about that. That's not impressive anymore. Well, That's well when you can write an operating system in one line, hmm. yeah. Chew on that one. Oh well, uh, what is it? G Core Lab. Uh, what was it? The the, uh, the DNS. The DNS thing. Yeah. It, I mean, nobody can write anything that's even working now. For oh, that's, <laughs> yeah. Well, that well, I mean, that was written eight years ago. So maybe yeah. they didn't. Maybe they weren't using solid techniques back then. Or uh, right. They, they didn't have. <laughs> it a wasn't good abstracted testing. enough. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't have a good testing framework in place then. Uh, so. All right. What's our next one? Learn to type. Yeah, I actually have uh, an experience here I'd like to share because I recently got the Microsoft Sculpt keyboard. Yeah, so Alan, do you and have anything if to you say? Think, All right, so we're moving on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you think you know how to type, you should get this keyboard and uh, you'll figure out very quickly which keys you're cheating on. Oh, are, are you getting better at it? Yeah, I'm pretty good, except the Bs keep throwing me off. I guess I was always hitting the Bs with my right hand, and so now I keep typing things like key Nord. <laughs> It's the bee's knees. So, so what's your what's your quick review on this? Because I got to know. You like it? On the keyboard? Oh, the keyboard? On the keyboard, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Um, like, I, I don't really have any pain or anything, so it's not like, you know, switching to it was suddenly much more comfortable, but I, I do like it. Um, the You know, the 
the delete home and keys are pretty annoying. So I get kind of frustrated sometimes when I'm trying to do something quickly and I have to go searching for one of those keys. But I think I'll, I'm going to learn that. But everything else, you know, the typing, the letters, the stuff that I thought I, I would be most annoyed with are totally fine. Yeah. Um, I do sometimes have to kind of like lean forward to figure out which one's like, you know, F8 or F7. But, uh, you know, it's all coming along really well. So I think just a couple of days of using has um, got me, you know, 90% there. Awesome. Hey, did any of you guys, after you read this, go take a typing test just to see what your <laughs> speed was? No, I hate those. Yeah. No. I mean, I, so I haven't stressful. bothered with one of those in, you know, well, I'm 21 now, so it's probably been <laughs> yeah, a couple a years ago. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally did. I think uh, when I was messing around, I got 80, what was it, 82 or 84 with two errors. 80, 84 words a minute with two errors. So that's not terrible. You suck. Yeah. Do you guys take one of those typing classes in high school where it's like, uh, you know, line three, 14 spaces, three X's. Yes. And by the time you did it, you would end up like a picture of a llama or something. Yes. I hated that so Such much. I was always trying to figure out what the stupid picture was so I could just do it. I remember the games <laughs> Dude. around it. Dude. Like the, where you had to you had to type correctly the correct whatever word or character was being popped up. And like the, the one that stands out in my mind was that there was this little character that was the screen was like a cliff and he was trying to run away from the cliff, but the cliff would catch up to him and do, which sounds like a crazy description. <laughs> <laughs> Basically think of like the world was falling out from underneath him. But if you were typing fast enough, then he could run ahead of, you know, the, the crumbling world, you know, so or, stressful. But if you messed up, then it would start to catch him. <laughs> oh my God. I actually we learned how typewriters. to type because of space quest. Like that uh, is the reason I know how to type because I was the playing. movie. No, no, the, I was making a joke. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Man, y'all are making me feel old. We we did our class on typewriters. Ooh. <laughs> yep. No white out loud. Oh, that's awesome. We did it anyway. Yeah, that was beauty being twenty one. Uh. Yeah. So he makes the point here though that uh, you know it's important to learn to touch type, mm-hmm. but. It's not necessarily that important of a skill for programming so much as by the time you become an intermediate programmer, you're going to be writing so much natural language elsewhere that that's where you, you're really going to benefit from just being able to type it and type it fast and be done with it. Emails, right? documentation, yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's not yeah. necessarily going to be the code. You're going to look at that screen like a monkey to a math problem <laughs> you know, sometimes for like you know a while, longer than you might like to admit. Looking at that code, like, wait a minute, where's the problem? Right? So there's not going to be a lot of typing during that. It's true. I mean, we just made that section way longer than it should have been, but it was fun. Well, yeah, no, <laughs> whatever. All right, fine. We'll move on. How to do integration testing. I feel like we did this one with the stress testing. Well, you actually don't do integration testing. All right, moving on to the next session. Wait, what? <laughs> no, I mean, you brought it up earlier, right? This is all your your... Well, again, I mean, that was just like when I was thinking about stress testing, that's how I think about it is it's, you know, a bigger thing. So that implies integration testing, but he specifically calls it out separate. And, you know, like any good plan, he says that you need to include this in your estimates and your schedules. But this also like, I don't know about you guys. Like every time I read that, though, I also think of waterfall. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Like all when, the all the planning and estimation. Yeah, like every time there's something in there about a plan and an estimate, I'm like, wow, that's a you know a, a, a definitely an older way of planning, maybe or project management, maybe. Yeah, I've I definitely worked on things where it's like 
we're going to hook this up to Salesforce, but we don't have the setup yet. So just go ahead and program as if it's there. And then, you know, once you start getting close and you start thinking about pushing this thing live and you realize, oh, crap, we've never actually tested this with Salesforce. <laughs> and so sometimes, uh, you know, surprise, surprise, integrating with these systems that you've kind of been taking for granted can be more problematic than you might think they will be. Well, that's actually kind of a neat example that falls in line with some of this, though, because he makes a point of saying that you know, it's better to integrate gradually, you know, as mm-hmm. things do become available you know, both the code and the resource like Salesforce in this example, you know, as that doesn't become available, then you could do the integration testing on that part, but you don't necessarily need to wait on, um, you know, all of the integration testing to be available before you start. Right. So, all right, let's move on to communication languages. Man, I took issue with a couple of things in here. Go ahead. Uh, I don't think we mentioned that this book is also available in Chinese. If you're listening to the show, uh, probably not very good. But if you know multiple languages, uh, one really awesome, nice thing you could do would be to translate this book into another language. And they've got folders set up for it. That's kind of cool. All right. So, yeah, this this whole uh, section right here, the communication languages, like he calls out three specifically. And to me, only one of these made sense. So he basically said that there are ways to communicate, uh, um, you know, what your intents with the code or anything is with other with other members of a team. And he calls out UML, XML, and SQL. Right. And to me, UML is the only one that fits that mold. It, yeah. He, I, I actually had my own question mark by those. I was like, wait, what? Dude, He uh, w- there was some place where he actually calls out XML and says... Uh, right here, XML is a standard for defining new standards. It is not a solution to data interchange problems, though you sometimes see it presented as if it was. Dude, that actually made my brain go haywire. I was like, no, I can't, I can't get behind this. Like XML is a way to save data and and exchange data. Well, also keep in mind the time frame that the document was written in too. I still don't get it. UML is the only one that is actually intended. To, to define an object space or or what are what were they called? I can't even remember. You have actors and and uh, oh, I can't even remember oh. what it is in, in UML. But but basically, you can define the, like use cases, actors. Yeah, I, oh, it's been a while. But yeah. yes, at least nobody, with, nobody uses that crap. Not anymore. I mean, back then <laughs> this was probably fairly. It was a pretty rich thing, but. I mean, it could write some of your code for you. It could define things that business users could look at and all that. That's what it's for. XML does not do that. And SQL is for querying a database or, or right. inserting records into a database. That is not a communication language for other people. Well, <laughs> I mean, I kind of... So, I agree with you that UML was the one uh, out of the three that he mentioned here. But I did kind of like the idea of like describing SQL as a communication language because if you if you were to take that approach then you're kind of saying like okay well this is how you get that data I'm going to describe to you how to get that data and here's the syntax here's here it is for a well, there's simple definitely times I'm no, not sorry, saying I agree no go ahead dude I was saying there's been times when someone's trying to describe like an application flow or something I need to do, and I'm like, just send me the tables and I'll figure it out. Right. Because you once you see where the one to minis are and the foreign keys, uh, hopefully, then uh, that gives you a really good sense of how the application is supposed to work. 
Yeah, but now you're going back to like diagrams. Like you're not going yeah. to SQL. That's closer to UML. Well, I mean, I right. look at the, yeah, right. I look at the tables, but yeah, I oh, I don't use the designer. Give me a break. <laughs> I think it's terrible. Well, I mean, it's just I don't know, man. When I hear SQL, like if you're talking about the very most vanilla thing, right? Like you want to say, okay, show me the orders and the order details. Okay, I might could get behind. You could take a simple. You know, select all from orders, join, order, details, and send that to somebody and they could get a fairly decent picture of it, right? But as soon as you start going much deeper than that, like, this is no longer any means of communication. It is literally sending code around that people either are going to understand or they're going to look at you and go, dude, I have no idea what you're sending me, right? But I think if I remember right, this article, or essay rather, was uh, originally authored in 2002, if I if I remember correctly, yeah, it was early, and he makes a point of that. He says, "I'm fairly sure UML is at least as good for you as studying Latin." <laughs> I disagree with either of those, but <laughs> back in 2002, <laughs> sorry for those Latin speaking people. Um, you know, for for back in 2002, though, I would have totally understood where he was coming from because I do remember there being a lot more hype back in the late nineties and early two thousands around, uh, UML. But now it seems like we as a society have progressed into this phase where we're like, you know what? <laughs> going back to our check, but I ain't nobody got time for it. <laughs> ain't nobody got time for documentation. So <laughs> let's just, let's just move on. Like, you know, we're, we're we've moved forward into this culture where we're like, hey, just code it, get it out there, yep. and you know, before we waste time on documenting it, we're probably going to iterate on it anyways, and it'll be completely different. So, you know, let's just keep going until we get to that end state, which may never ever happen. Right. You know, and and that's where it becomes so important to make the code readable and self-documenting because we're probably not going to take the time to document it. So the likelihood of you even being given this UML diagram or even having the time to create the UML diagram, hmm, probably not going to happen. If you remember right, the big selling factor for UML was you could define your business cases and then it would write your boilerplate code for you. Like that oh, was, I remember so many. Like We mentioned the rational tool yeah. suite mm-hmm. before, and it was so, like I'm going to say, bad about that. Yeah. Like it, You'd create all these stupid boxes and like here's my customer object and this object is going to have these methods and it's going to return this value but it wouldn't have like any real business logic in it necessarily it would just be stubbed out there's only one thing that i can think of off the top of my head that that falls into this and i know outlaw you and i went to a meetup and joe i don't remember if you were here or not but it was a thing to where you could write business Type, oh, oh, golly, I cannot. The, the, the testing framework. Yes, and I um, cannot remember the name of it. It was based on Cucumber. You could you could write it in, pickle. in, in layman's type terms. It was a spec. Um, That's it. Gosh. It, oh, man, now, <laughs> why'd you have to do that to me, Alan? So, <laughs> so basically, that falls into this category for me. Something to where the business person gives you plain English directions of what something should do and then you build Got your it. test cases off of it what was it spec flow spec flow there you, it, it is it was a language for writing uh business 
unit tests or business. Re- I'm sorry. Let me rephrase this. It was a language for writing business requirements that could translate into um, unit tests. Unit tests. Yes. But it allowed it allowed your business owners and users the ability to provide the developer business requirements in in a language that was easy for them. Quote easy for them. Right. That the developer could just like import into the code and with a um, tool set like SpecFlow, it could automatically understand that and then build out the unit tests that were necessary to support it. And generate reports showing that, you know, hey, these business tests pass or whatever. So to me, that is more of a communication type thing, a communication language that you could use between business owners and developers. Yeah. so I I mean, basically, the language that was in use there within SpecFlow is uh, if if anyone's ever used the given when then syntax or the GWT syntax, for defining requirements, that's basically what the input was to SpecFlow. So you might have a uh, a statement like, given I have a first-time customer, when the customer successfully places their order, then they get a welcome coupon emailed to them, right? So that might be their business requirement, and then you can... You know, get, using that syntax of given when then, then the developer has a lot of information that they can use as their what their requirements are, and then use ca- test cases can be written around that. So that that's what that is. Yep. So, anyways, that we we kind of beat that section up, but that I don't know. It, maybe it was the time frame this was written in, but I definitely did not see some of this being quite relevant. But well, well, speaking of relevance, uh, you guys might be surprised to know what you've been talking about over here googling. I could not find a single UML tattoo. <laughs> SQL yes, XML yes, but UML is so nerdy and forgotten that nobody even has any diagrams tattooed on them on the entire internet. Hey, maybe that's how Kanye can earn some money. Because I, <laughs> uh, yeah. I hear that he's in need of some cash. There, there's actually a GoFundMe for that. <laughs> I know. Yeah. That, that's insane. So maybe he needs to contact Rational and be like, yo. I got this primetime real estate on right, my shoulder. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe we maybe we should make that a thing. Like the first person, you know what? The first listener that ta- that that sends us a picture of their UML <laughs> tattoo, <laughs> wherever they have it, let's not make it too obscene. Uh, but you know, wh- whoever sends us that first UML tattoo, then uh, I don't know what what do you want to do? Coffee give them a t shirt or something, wh- whatever you want. Yeah, just you know, let us know. <laughs> Uh, and it yep. can't be our friend John because we know he's the king of Photoshop. So, <laughs> oh yeah, no, it can't be photoshopped. That's cheating. Uh, All right, so let's move on to the next section here. Yep, heavy tools. And this is a new section. Yeah, yeah. Okay, moving on. Yeah, so- <laughs> I don't know what to really say about that. He he basically is talking about like uh you know learn some heavy tools. And, and he yeah, was talking it, about like databases and stuff. So I don't. Yeah, I mean, there was a bunch of there were several of them that he lists as examples. But you know, databases were definitely up there, and full text search engines were up there. So you know, Solar comes to mind. Well, um, um, to me, when I read this section, I thought of a time when I was working for like a small comp- you know web shop that was doing custom websites, and we were talking um, to this company about doing their e-commerce site and we had done e-commerce sites before and they're like, why don't you use a search engine? And I'm like, 
what what's that <laughs> i just you know like i have this wear clause and i add and the clauses to it based on <laughs> whatever you need and uh, uh yeah what that could was possibly go wrong with that but I definitely think there can be, especially if you're in kind of a, a monoculture or you're working a silo where you don't necessarily see things, um, you know, in your actual work where you kind of get in this um, not invented here syndrome where you just kind of start to write everything by scratch and forget that you can kind of reach out and grab stuff. But I think that's gotten a lot better with tools like, you know, package managers like Maven or NuGet or, or you know, NPM, whatever. So I think it's gotten a lot easier to bring in third party stuff. Um, over the years and uh, documentation has got better things have gotten simpler so i think that's uh getting a lot better nowadays i don't think anyone try to write a scratch a search engine by scratch from scratch yeah i mean one of the heavy tools listed that he lists those spreadsheet yeah i i this this part kind of got me like i i i looked at it i glanced over the bullet points and i was like okay i'm out of here so yeah, it, it's not to discount what he's trying to say, but I don't know. That just didn't do it for me. But what you just said, Joe, so like the package managers, Maven, NPM, all those, I feel like they're starting to reach uh, Apple store levels of clutter, which is driving me a little crazy, <laughs> yeah. right? Like you can't find anything. Right. Hey, man, you can't say that because uh, just a few episodes ago, we were talking about Gulp and how many great packages there were for Gulp. And uh-huh. now it sounds like... You're going back on that. Yeah, I might have over overstated how awesome it is. But so <laughs> here, here's the other thing, too, though. And this is something that I think people, this is a good resource for just kind of finding out about some things that may be outside their, their knowledge zone. Go to like Azure or AWS and look at the services they offer because a lot of the services they do offer are based off uh, problem spaces, right? That needed to be solved. So, so if you think about like, like you said, you didn't know that there were these search engines that you could use like solar or any of those go to AWS, there's cloud search, right? If you go to Azure, they have their own version of it, I'm sure. So it's, those are good places. If nothing else, just to kind of browse the features that they have so that you can kind of get an idea of tools that you may not even know exist, you know? So, just a thought. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, it, uh, it. I don't know why, but for some reason, it reminded me of one of the conversations on the in the Dev Talk um, channel on codingblocks.slack.com, and uh, where Carl had mentioned that he posted this article about AWS documentation being. Uh, well, there was an expletive there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Basically, Not so the great. <laughs> The, the the long and short of it was is that this a Java developer who was wanting to use a an AWS service you know using Java obviously had to basically rely on the C sharp documentation documentation because the Java documentation was horrible and basically what he wanted to see there was a beautiful example in three lines of code in C sharp that applied to any language oh that's awesome and and I. And I guess like that particular service I've worked with with um, AWS, so I kind of felt a little bit of the author's pain. <laughs> so I was like, "Yeah, I, I hear you, buddy. I hear you." You're, yeah, I think when you were working with Outlaw, I think there was only the Java version of the documentation. I don't think they even had the C sharp. Um, 
Well, they did have the C sharp version of the documentation. And we're for those curious, we're talking about the Amazon Simple Workflow service. And uh gosh, that's been like what, three, four years ago been now? A little while. And at the time, the documentation there was documentation for either language, but all of the documentation the, the C sharp documentation was very I mean that brevity com- chapter that we talked about <laughs> it definitely adhered to that uh, um, but everything tried to really gear you towards using the Java version and you know that's where like all the defined or the better defined patterns of how they wanted this thing to be used and work because there were complete projects let's say that hadn't yet been made available in any other language except Java that built on top of this core set of APIs. <laughs> and, you know, it was only available in Java. So yeah, it, it was definitely rough, but yeah, I kind of, I kind of, uh, you know, my heart bled a little with him when I read that. <laughs> and when you were making your comment just a moment ago about it, 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 uh, brought, brought back tears. Yes. Yeah. So the very next piece was how to analyze data. And this one, I don't know. I guess, again, like, this was just... Go ahead. I, I'm i so surprised. Like, even as you're trying to describe it, you're like, oh, I'm so bored about Dana. <laughs> I totally thought that you would be all over this section. You love data. You've said that many times, even on this show. And here's a section on data, and you're like, oh, data. But it was more talking about, like, it wasn't talking to – I didn't feel – either I just missed the whole point of that area, but it didn't feel like it was analyzing data. It was more talking about, like, how are you going to store your data structures and where no. you put your variables. Like, like I don't know. Joe, what was your take on that area? Uh, I, I, I don't love this one. This is – and if I was a better person, I would probably contribute and try to um, – inflict my own um, thoughts on it but uh, I will say that here's the quote I was looking for earlier it's from Nicholas Wirth algorithms plus data structures equals programs and that's all I have to say on this section that is true yeah well actually even the author here has a similar one he says algorithms plus data structures equals programs yeah oh yeah (laughs) I think you might have fallen asleep I thought you when you said Nicholas Wirth I thought you were quoting something from the Slack channel sorry oh no not this time yeah (laughs) I think we all uh uh like the section, so we should probably go move on. Yep. All right. Well, so. but hold on. <laughs> no, because what th- th- this section was talking about, like understanding what that data is, and so that you can know how to, how your application can scale. Right. Yeah, like, you know what it is that the paragraphs are. Mister big. big Data. <laughs> that might be what it was. <laughs> so Mister Big Data didn't like this section because it was too much data. Yeah, probably. Yeah, three line <laughs> max per paragraph. We need to get a linter on this paragraph. thing. There's a there's a two word paragraph. In all fairness, yes, in this not section. so. That's my favorite one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the one thing that it did say that I that I agreed with was, you know, if you feel like if you're trying to take like all the permutations of a word or something, you're trying to do something. If you go about it one way, it could take days to run that algorithm, right? Whereas if you were to approach it from a different perspective, then you could do it in maybe seconds. And so I do feel like there is a lot of of usefulness in understanding and knowing your data and how what the expected outcomes of that should be. So it's not anything I want to belittle, but I don't know. I guess maybe when I was reading all this, there there was so much here. 
And it really all boiled down to that. It was like, literally, <laughs> understand your data, understand what you want out of it, and then, you know, figure out how to make that work. So because you had to read a lot, you're like, no. Yeah, you know, anybody got time for that. After a session. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. I mean, yes, it's valid. You should understand your data. You should understand what's coming in and what needs to go out, and then, you know, the best ways to get there. Yep. The and then, um, the next section on how to manage <laughs> open time. <laughs> All right, fine. We'll move on to how to manage. Well, actually, this came up in Slack today. I made some joke about um, getting someone else to do my estimates for me since it would probably be as accurate as if I did it himself, <laughs> myself. And uh, a total the, stranger. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I feel, I'm going to find this I guy's feel name. Like we need oh. like triumphant insult dog, and you know, random stranger on the street oh. trying to guess like what what uh, the estimates should be for Joe's next <laughs> next task. Well, I, I like it because I'm. Uh, it was Som decide He had just joined the channel uh, right before I asked this, like minutes before, and uh, he was like, "What's your velocity?" And I was like. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Crap. There's totally uh, this is totally a known problem that people have been working on for years, and there are many many techniques and many years of techniques and articles written around uh, how to make good estimates. And I am <laughs> not following any other advice and then complaining because my estimates are bad. <laughs> <laughs> so he uh, schooled me within five minutes of joining the, the chat. Thanks. <laughs> Joe's exited the building. <laughs> yeah. We will no longer see his interactions. So, on so Slack. I just wonder then, like uh, all, all of this documentation and essays and whatnot on on how to better improve your uh, make better estimates. Were they also long winded <laughs> sections that you didn't feel like reading? Uh, well, I, I, mean, I read them all. Yeah, I highlighted a whole paragraph. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah know, I got tons little, of notes in my Kindle. Tip. I always thought that I always heard, and in, in, in my own personal opinion, he agreed that like if highlighting was just something you're just kind of like telling your mind, I'm gonna come back to this. No, I, I don't me, need to focus on it right now. I'll no, just come back to no, it. No, for me, it's actually I thought this was an important point. Like it, my mind doesn't work like anybody else's apparently. Yeah, I, I, I just don't highlight except. Well, I mean, you're on a Kindle, so I guess that's kind of different. You can't make yeah, notes otherwise. Yeah, I've heard that otherwise. same thing. So I've heard that same thing, but for whatever reason, like when I, I highlight something, I'll remember, oh, I highlighted yes. something there. And yes. so I'll go and find that one thing I was looking for. It sticks out in my memory. It's like when you write something down, it sticks in your memory for some reason. It's the same type thing. But there mm-hmm. was something in here I did like. He said, if you miss a milestone, you should take immediate action, such as informing your boss that the scheduled completion of that project has slipped by that amount. The estimate and schedule could never have been perfect to begin with. This creates the illusion that you might be able to make up the days you missed in the latter part of the project. That, to me, is so key. It happens so much because you're like, okay, I missed this one by a day, but I can make that up. Right? And in reality, that's almost never the case. Yeah, totally. I, I have been on so many projects where the first deadline slips, and that's already a bad sign. And then they're like... You know what? That just means you have to buckle down on right. the second part, and then that one slips, and then it, eventually you get the, this gigantic, you know, snowball of doom that you're never going to be able to surmount. But somehow the deadline never changes. But everyone knows you're not going to make it. But somehow <laughs> it's still the deadline. Well, this goes back to my comment earlier about uh, you know a lot of these reading is like you know the mindset is definitely in a waterfall kind of you yeah. know, project management because there was another statement in here where he says the project plan exist to help make decisions, not to show how organized you are. So 
Yeah, I like that. That's what it should be. I, I like that. I like that. You know, it's to help make decisions, right? Um, sometimes those decisions are: can everyone go on vacation or not? That sucks. <laughs> yeah, but uh, um, but again, it it still felt like it wasn't a more modern um, take on it. Now, again, this document, their essay has been updated on GitHub, and unfortunately, we found out uh, the author. Uh, pinged us. Uh, was that an email or a tweet? No, it was on. Uh, it, was it was a comment. On comment on our. Oh yeah, a comment on, on, episode, the, 38. on episode thirty-eight. Um, that uh, actually the copy that we were reading was, uh, you know, wasn't the most current one. So maybe some of that verbiage has been changed. But I will say though, in terms of that, I've definitely worked in agile, you know, shops, and it's still the same thing. You can still go to them and be like, yo, um, I know that we thought that this was only going to take a week, but it's going to take two weeks. And then they'll be like, Oh, well, you're just really going to have to kick it into gear that third week to try and get the rest of that sprint together. And it's like, dude, yeah, like, come on, man. Like I came to you honestly and told you what's going on, right? There were X, Y, and Z hidden landmines that nobody had any idea about. And so now I've got to suffer for this. And unfortunately, that happens way more often than, right. than the inverse where they're like, okay, let me adjust and slide this back out. Oh, no, we estimated the points. <laughs> you got those points, right? Uh, so <laughs> yeah, it was like, so that, that outage that we had yesterday that uh, you know took me 10 hours to solve, that doesn't count, I guess. Right. <laughs> that doesn't count for anything. None of I us are just bitter. not done it. <laughs> None of us not are bitter anything. at all ever about yeah. any of this. And by the way, this is how to be a programmer, intermediate. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you you jovially gripe about the things that happen like that and you move on because they're going yep. to happen. So, yeah. Over and over and over again. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to the French stripper and talk about how to manage third-party software risk. Man, I yeah, I really like what they said about not resting hopes on vapor. Dude, totally. As basically right. promised software that isn't already available. I've, I've definitely worked with things and like, oh, the next version is going to come out. It's going to solve all your problems. And so you're just like, oh, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of ignore all the problems that I'm seeing right now because I'm sure they're all going to get fixed. Dude, totally. And then, uh, yeah, you get bit in for, the butt. For just for those that uh, you know, any new listeners that may not uh, have caught caught up on back episodes and they're like the french stripper uh there was a story in one of the earlier parts of this essay where uh, they were talking about a uh, a third party utility to strip html out of text that was written by a um french company and they referred to the uh that third party software as the french stripper and um you know sometimes you don't even have exposure to what those tools are doing. So, dude, but the vapor is so awesome. If you're being promised something, he basically <laughs> says, assume that it doesn't exist. And that is so true. I can't stress that enough. If you have a third party company that's saying, yeah, we're getting that out to you in this next release, which is coming out in two weeks, don't believe it. Just. Well, Assume yep. that it's not there. Assume it won't be there. And if it is, dude, that's icing on the cake, right? But but even, yep. Never even if it's not necessarily vapor, maybe if you do have it, though, going back to the French stripper example, that you know, he, there's the point in here that he makes that you know, there's great risks associated with that third party software, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, that was the story that he uh, 
you know, illustrated in, in one of the earlier chapters. Yeah, he even said, if third-party software is not vapor, it is still risky. But at least it's a risk that can be tackled because you have it, right? It's it's in your hands. You can at least go after it. And in the case of that, that other software, you know, there was a problem with it and they had to figure it out. But at least they had it. But if it's something that's being promised to you, it's just as good as assuming that, you know, your company is going to sink while you wait on this. Right. Well, I like that yep. he, he summarizes it, too, by saying never let your schedule depend on vapor. Right. Right. Although I've also seen third-party uh, solutions that were totally working uh, go belly up over Christmas while I had the flu. So, uh, <laughs> are you serious? Uh, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> I feel like we'll he's referring to an example that uh, you should know about. <laughs> I, I feel like I can't remember what it is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, so it's uh, just a you know, it's good to always be aware of your dependencies and. Uh, have backup plans. Yes. Maybe he's referring that, uh, to a really search important. example. No, not definitely not that. Next. No. Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So this next one, how to manage consultants. This one's kind of interesting because I've been a consultant, or I was a consultant for many, many years. Uh, I know Outlaw, you kind of did yep, consulting yep. for most of your career as well. And this one's kind of a touchy subject because... A lot of times as a consultant, you're like the go-to guy on a lot of things, right? Like you're the one who needs to have the knowledge. You're the one that's kind of burning new paths. You're you're the one that's doing a lot of the legwork. And And the fun stuff. And the fun stuff. And that's true. And the problem is that does step on employees' toes because a lot of times they get stuck with kind of garbage work while you're out there blazing the way, right? Right. Um, But on the flip side, the frustrating part of it is, you know, you're kind of a disposable commodity, right? right? I mean, okay, so yeah, you're the guy that's all gung-ho. You might be the dude that's just working your tail off and you're getting everything done while it seems like the employees are coasting by. But guess what? At the end of the day, you're the one that they have no real obligation to. So, you know, they basically have to treat you as a throwaway to a certain degree. And I hate to use it that way, but... Well, you know, I mean, he starts off this section by saying to use consultants... But don't rely on them. And, you know, you want to agree with that so much because you're like, yeah, totally. Why? That makes absolute sense. You should not rely on them. But yet, anyone who's ever been in that position can tell you from experience, oh, you'll be relied on. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. you'll be relied and on. And you'll be leaned on heavily. Oh, yeah, you will. Yep. More so than some of the employees. Yep. And it's weird and I don't I've I've tried to reason this out over the years because I was a consultant for a massive part of my career and I think part of it is typically as a consultant you're always on the edge and you know you are so you're always pushing that boundary back further right like you're always attacking and trying to find out new and better ways to do things. Whereas a lot of employees keeps are like, you on the edge of your seat. It, it really does because you know it's it's one of those things like, hey, if I'm not performing, I'm I'm dead weight, right? right. Like, I'm not somebody that's got some sort of you know they have to write me up three times with some pink slips to kick me out right. the door. They just got to be like, yo, Mister Underwood. They can uh, decide while I'm at lunch that they didn't yeah. like my morning. Exactly. Hey, uh, you kind of looked at somebody wrong today. I mean, there's. It's a totally different ball game, but it also makes you a little bit sharper. And that's why 
I feel like you're kind of more of a go-getter when you do that, and people sort of look to you for the answer because they know you're the guy that's going to go do things. So I don't know. This this part's frustrating because I've always taken what I do personally, right? Like if I make something for a customer, I want it to reflect something awesome. Like I want the customer to think this is incredible. I want to look at it and be like, man, I did a killer job on this, and I want everybody to be happy. And so when when you're kind of seen as a disposable you know, commodity, sometimes it's hard to take that and, and not internalize it. Yeah. You know, he also says too, that, you know, the best way to use the consultants was as educators in house that can teach by example. And from experience, from practice, really, it doesn't I don't happen. know that I've ever seen like I'm not, maybe I'm not understanding what he, maybe I'm misunderstanding what he means in regards to, you know, ed, in-house educators that teach by example, because unless he means like, you know, Hey, uh, go look at that code that outlaw wrote as a good way to do it, or maybe not a good way. That never well, happened. Well, I've seen, um, situations where like some consultants will come in and say, set up your, uh, network or maybe some sort of monitoring tool or log aggregation tool and then they kind of step you through it and they're supposed to kind of give you some kind of, or, you know, ideally they would give you some sort of tips or pointers on how you should kind of continue on and, and integrate further with that once they're gone. So that's a fair point. So, so I guess the distinction that I would make there though, is depending on the length of the contract, right? Hired right. for a task versus hired for, right. you like, know, like augmenting a work team or something. If you're bringing someone in for a week. Mm-hmm. Then I agree with what you're saying, Joe, right? Like those are going to be examples where you're like, hey, just come in, set this up, show me what you did, and then thank you, right? But if you're bringing someone in for like three to six months or something like that, I've never seen those people necessarily used as in-house educators, right? Right. And and I also kind of got the take too that like maybe he's just had some bad experiences with, with consultants, um, you know, at least up in, uh, up to the point where he uh, wrote this essay. Um, you know, because he he reviewed to he um, reviewed to he commented that um, you know the co- any code that was going to be written by the consultants, right? He makes this assumption that it's not going to be reviewed, and that you wouldn't want large blocks of code written by these consultants because it's not reviewed. And it's like, well, okay, a um, why is it not reviewed? Right. Right. And B, why can't they write large blocks of code? What do you want them to do? Well, right. would, you, would you bring them in to write small blocks of code? This has always been the frustrating part. And, and I hope nobody's taken away that, you know, we're, we're downgrading employees because I'm actually an employee right now and very happy to be. Um, but the interesting part is one of the frustrating things to me as a longtime consultant was they're like, oh, but if you get hit by a pus, then I need to know what's going on. And I'm like, okay, what about that employee over there? Just because he's W-2 oh, yeah. doesn't mean that dude can't walk out the door. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Right? I, I, I know that I know I've shared this story personally. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the show. But, you know, to your, to your example about, you know, that employee getting hit by a bus, I actually worked on a project one time where one of the – Guys on the team. He was an employee of the of the company. He was our uh, sysadmin, and uh, 
I think he might also played a DBA role too. But um, super bright guy, right? Loved to skydive. Had, at that time, he was definitely well into triple digits in terms of number of jumps. And you know, as a traveling you know, uh, consultant, he would, uh, well, cause you know, everyone in the company was a consultant for someone else. Um, but as a traveling consultant, every new place that he would go, one of the first things he would do is he would find and book a jump, <laughs> you know, at least one for that week. Right. And we literally had to have, uh, you know, a line item in terms of risk of like, okay. Uh, you know, as bad as it sounds, in case things go splat, then <laughs> <laughs> what's our contingency here, right? So, right. so uh, yeah, I mean, you know, just because it's an employee doesn't necessarily mean that uh, they're not going to get hit by the bus. Yeah, I mean, I guess kind of to, to just sort of wrap up this little portion right here. Yes, you don't treat consultants exactly like you do employees. First off, there's laws against it, but... I will say, though. Thank you, Microsoft. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> they can be leaned on and should be leaned on. And if they're not if they're not doing what they need to do, then, you know, you need to move on. Because the whole point of a consultant is to bring expertise fast and get stuff done. And, and so I get that. But at the same time, they are still people and they do still have feelings. And a lot of them take pride in what they do. So, you know, you know treat them as you would any other person. It, as well as you could, but you know, they're a resource. So two, two last points I want to make here. One, the, in regards to the Microsoft joke, it's not that there are laws about, um, that you can't treat them as employees. It's kind of the other way around that. Um, if you are treating the consultants and, or, you know, contractors as employees, then they get the benefits Uh, of the employee. And that was a lawsuit that came up to Microsoft I don't years like the 80s, ago. I think it might have been ago, like it was well ahead of my time. But yeah, um, <laughs> why are you laughing? Yeah, I was just like, <laughs> I'm working in the 80s. Um, and uh, <laughs> and then the other comment that I, was that um, I think it was earlier this afternoon. I was reading an article that was kind of interesting that relates somewhat to this about you know use you know he, he's saying to use consultants and in the article that I was reading it was talking about like how to staff your company and. <clears throat> You know, in terms of like gauging your your cost, um, your employee cost and whatnot, and um, one of the case studies that, that that they were discussing was, you know, the company said, okay, fine, we'll staff. We'll once we determine what our staffing needs are, we'll staff up to eighty five percent of that, and then we'll contract out the rest. We'll contract out that last remaining fifteen percent, right? And so, you know. Maybe depending on what your situation is in, in your company, then that's something you know that that's helpful for you too. Absolutely, you know, keep keep some portion of that uh, of that uh, staffing budget available for consulting. Yep. All right. So the next section is how to communicate the right amount, and uh, I like this one a lot. Meetings are sometimes necessary, but smaller is usually better. And that is so true. Yep, it's multiplied by the number of participants. So the more people you have in the meeting, not only is it the, the more time spent, but it's also, um, you know, there's been lots of studies talking about how 
uh, people will take less individual responsibility when there's more people in a meeting. It, one thing that he said that was kind of interesting here too, in addition to that, was if you see somebody getting bored, that means your meeting's probably too big. There's too many people in it. You need to shrink it. Right. You know, and, and that's that's pretty key. Like, I definitely have worked in places where they were just bringing everybody in the department into a meeting. And it was usually so counterproductive because people would almost just argue to be heard as opposed to trying to come up with a good solution to something. Maybe it's just, maybe it's as an engineer, you know, I like numbers. Maybe Maybe it's, you know, being a numbers guy. But whenever I'm in a big meeting, I can't help but, like, just kind of look around the room and take a head count and be like, Oh my How God! How much money? If you were to extrapolate that out into dollars, yeah, there's some serious money in this 30 minute meeting. Yep, right. Like, you know, especially like in larger meetings. Yep, no doubt. But yeah, I mean, shorter is better, and with fewer people. You know, get to the point. Have have a point. Get to it, and then call it and move on. I, I did like he he makes a point about you know doing everything doing everything you can to encourage informal communication and that sometimes the most useful work happens during lunch with colleagues. Yep. Totally agree. And, you know, for years I've always had the opinion of like, you know, some people will bring their lunch to work and I've always been like, no, I got to get out of here. So like, it's not that it's not anything bad, but sometimes you just got to step away from the problem, you know, like give your brain a chance to reset. But then not only that, but sometimes you just get an opportunity to brainstorm with your colleagues while you're out. Yep. Right. Or talk about like, learn whatever they're working on and be like, Oh man, that sounds amazing. I want to work on that. How do I get to work on that? You know? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, th- those informal communication lines are sometimes the most valuable. Yeah. I always thought if I had a company that I would do paid lunch hours, you know, so you know, basically you work from, you know, eight to five or whatever. And, uh, that, that one hour there was kind of like, you know, basically encouraged to kind of go spin it somewhere. Cause you know, you can, what well, are you referring to like a Facebook or a Google where there's an in-house chef and you just no. go to the cafeteria? No, like it's a great, you know, I've, worked, I've worked in places where people will skip lunch in order to like leave early or, you know, they'll just eat real fast in the, in the break room and then leave, you know, 45 minutes early or whatever. So I like the idea of kind of doing the opposite, be like, Oh, you're going to be here from, you know, eight till six. And whether you go to lunch, you know, with all your buddies or not, you know, you're still going to be here for that time. Although it really doesn't match up with, you know, like I'm much more interested in like flexible scheduling and whatnot now. And I'm even working from home, but I I always just thought it was a kind of a cool idea to encourage people to go to lunch together. Yeah. The the whole cafeteria thing sounds nice, but it's, a pr- it's I, I like get, prison. Sometimes I just got to yeah. get out of the building, though. It feels, yeah. it almost feels like you, you don't want to breathe the same air anymore, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Totally agree. The grass is greener kind of uh, philosophy. Yep. All right. So the very last section in this area is how to disagree honestly and get away with it. Well, Anybody you start with having so? a name like Outlaw. <laughs> I disagree. <Yep>. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I like where he starts it off with saying that you know, disagreement is a great opportunity to make a good decision, right? Um, it, True. Yeah, and uh, it, it reminded me, <clears throat> there was another comment that he makes in here about, um, you know, basically during this disagreement, um, you know, maybe you don't, maybe your your 
side isn't chosen, right? And so the decision is to go with the other one. But sometimes you have to, even though you disagree with it, you have to go along with it. And it reminded me of, I think we mentioned it last time, about uh, having backbone and commit to, uh, um, you know, to whatever the decision that's finally made, right? Yeah. I mean, the thing yeah, is, absolutely. yeah, the the one key part here that I think is super important is don't disagree silently, right? Because there's something positive that can be, that can come out of you bringing up the topic in an agreeable way, but disagreeing. And then that way the people, even if they don't go your way and you're still a team player, that's a positive reflection on you, right? You didn't agree, but you still came together and did whatever the decided path was. And that is a reflection on how you work as a team. And that's, that's important. And, probably something that a lot of people and especially programmers in general, they either they're extremely combative or they're very internal, right? It's, it's usually one of the two. I'd say most programmers I've met are, are one of those two polarizing. Yeah. Alan is definitely internal. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) All three of us. Actually, if anybody here is, it's Joe. Joe's just like, ah, whatever. Yeah, I'll do. That's because I just I disagree so much with everything. I disagree with myself. Like even a few minutes ago, I uh, was encouraging um, group lunches and also working from home on flexible schedules at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) I I hold these truths, you know, like one hundred percent on both sides of my brain. Oh, that's awesome! And they're totally in conflict. Backbone and commit is just a suggestion, is what Joe said. Uh, it, it It is a suggestion, and it's <laughs> truth, and it's also false. Uh, well, I you know, I, there's another great point that he makes in here, though, that like, okay, so the decision is made, and it doesn't go along with whatever your suggestion was. Regardless of what the outcome of that decision is, okay, whether it's successful or not, or whether it's reversed, y- you can never, ever say and i told you so oh that's right? horrible because even yeah. though your decision wasn't the chosen path guess what your decision wasn't fully explored as well as the decision that was made right true so as tempting as you might be able to say i told you we should have done x y and z you really don't know but it, here's something else and this is just an observation of joe in action over the years. Here, here's something that's... Did, did you know that we were going to dissect you on the show here, Joe? <laughs> yes. Sit back. Yes, and no at the same time. Dr. Phil is here. Uh, so this is kind of interesting, and this is just an observation. So Joe really is not all that combative. Like, he's pretty he's pretty agreeable on just about yellow anything. Mellow. Say what? Mellow yellow? Pretty much. <laughs> and But here's the thing. It can play out to a benefit, though, for this reason. He's usually very agreeable, but if he does raise a concern, a lot of times there are people like, whoa, whoa, whoa. this guy's bringing something up. Right. The, the, this must be a big deal. Like, right. Like, I, I – He uh, never talks. Right, right. Why let's, is he speaking? Uh, let's take a step back here. Step back, folks. <laughs> let's see what's going on. Now, and I think we're giving Joe a complex, like, I never talk. <laughs> like, oh. And it's not that he never talks. He's just very agreeable. Like, I mean, we're right, right, Joe? 
Yeah. Go ahead and agree. Yeah, wrong. <laughs> well, I also, um, I'm a big fan of kind of being patient, at, like in meetings and whatnot, because a lot of times, like if I hold a pen in strongly, if I just kind of hold my tongue long enough, like the uh, the other people arguing out will sometimes come around to my way of thinking. And, you know, if they don't, I can always voice my opinion, you know, at that time. But even better is sometimes they convince me that I'm wrong before I ever <laughs> even bother to say anything. So it's like, ah. Oh. Good, good I thing just I didn't thought say of anything. the most excellent example of this. Please so, share. So this is definitely, you know, more meta about the show again. But uh, God, I don't even remember how long ago it was. It may have been six months ago, or maybe a month or two more, give or take. That we had this great idea, and by we, I really mean Alan, uh, to set up a design competition oh. to come up with a new logo, right? <laughs> and so all of these great submissions were coming in. And I swear, if you ever want to test your friendship with anyone, try to agree <laughs> on art. <laughs> so especially when it's like a decision that you're going to make, like this is going to represent us. Uh. And, and so we would have these discussions We'll call them for, you know, <laughs> lightly. To call it lightly. Very low-key. Angry hangout discussions. sessions. And yes. I definitely remember that there were some times where where it, more than once, Joe would let Alan and I talk for 20 minutes. <laughs> and then Joe would come in and be like, yeah, I don't care what you guys are doing. This is what I'm doing. And uh, if it happens to fall your way, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and it would literally be to the point where both me and Michael are like, I don't even freaking care, man. You just pick. Like, I don't, I don't I care. I'm one star. It was, it was or... like, it was like the old bickering couple, right? <laughs> like, but dude, the beauty of it is, is we got to a really good design. Yeah, I mean, we at least like it. We don't. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, no. I love it. I think we still need to uh, update. <laughs> we still need to use it. it. Yeah. We were so completely destroyed by. <laughs> Of it that we were like, man, that logo is awesome. I'm not oh, touching it. Stupid design. Yeah, I'm not touching it. Like, this is so <laughs> important that we have to argue over it for hours. And now that we have it, it you were just kind of tired. Oh, dude, <laughs> thinking about it. So many talks <laughs> of monkeys but and hey, plain looking look. But hey, you know yeah. what? <laughs> Those stupid monkeys. monkeys. <laughs> oh my god, and dinosaurs. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but you know what though. Somebody went out and got themselves some business cards. Yes, they did. And it wasn't Mr. Alan Underwood or Mr. Outlaw. <laughs> whoa, 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 wait a minute. Why are you throwing Carpe a hand in the bus? Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's I actually true. gave out a good portion of them, too. Oh, really? Yep. Nice. I, I, we need to get some. I, I need to go by the print shop. Anyways, <laughs> all right, so moving on. What is next? So, um, I don't know if you guys check iTunes as often as we do here uh, at Cody Blocks headquarters, but um, when we get lots of reviews like we had the last couple of weeks, we shoot way up in the rankings in like software and technology, which is huge for us finding new listeners. So, I um, just want to take a minute to say thank you so much for leaving us reviews, and if you haven't done so yet, we would really appreciate it because it is fantastic and absolutely crucial for us uh getting new listeners so please do it and you can do it itunes stitcher wherever podcasts are found we actually uh, have some links to on the website so yeah if you want to remember the link i would appreciate them saying it www.codyblocks.net slash review 
<laughs> yep. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, we, we, we really do appreciate those. We're I, all about I can't stress here. that enough. This episode is sponsored by Dev Bootcamp. Thinking about becoming a software developer? Check out Dev Bootcamp, the original short-term immersive software development program that transforms those new to coding into job-ready, full-stack web developers. Learn front and back-end web development, teamwork, and leadership skills in a rigorous and inclusive environment. Dev Bootcamp has several locations around the country and is accepting applications now. Visit devbootcamp.com slash coding blocks to learn more. So before we get into the last section here, one of you, I don't remember which, had brought up the poll from the last episode. Yep. Now, neither of you cheated, right? I did not. Okay. Barely. What? (laughs) So in episode 38, there was a video that we had posted that was, uh, and the question was, how would you cross the puddle, right? And you had three choices. You could either hop around the side, who knows what's underneath there, or you could say, hey, you know what? No wake zone, slow and steady, wins the race, just walk right through it. Or you could just say, you know what? Damn the torpedoes, full steam ahead, we're plowing through this. Okay? Like a boss. All right. So... (laughs) Let those are your three options. Which one do you? Do, well, let me rephrase this. Do you want to just pick one that you think everyone picked, yeah. or do you want to give percentages like we did last time? You just want to pick one. I'll just pick one. Everybody picked the first one. Everyone picked hop around the side. Yeah. All right. What do What do you uh, What do you say there, Joe? I think that most people would not even notice it because they're listening to fantastic podcasts and <laughs> thinking about other things. <laughs> so it sounds like uh, you're in one of the last two options then. Yeah, I'm in uh, full steam ahead. Yeah, he's blasting through. Full steam ahead. All yeah, right. Damn torpedoes. Okay, well, um, I'll put it to you like this. You're both not wrong. <laughs> Whoa, we have an even spread of percentages here? We do. Really? Crazy, right? But yeah, it worked out this time to where those were the two popular options and they were even. What what right. was the evenness? Were we talking forty percent each? Yeah, yeah. They're they were like forty one percent. See, I was not wrong in my assessment of how that should be done. But you know what? <laughs> Neither was I, which is you walk around the puddle. I have a more adventurous side. I like how I like how your option was to just go through it, <laughs> but yet you picked that the audience would say to walk around it. Well, I think most people live on the safe side. I'm more of the man. Let's just see what happens. Yeah, right? like, let's just step in the pothole. Right, man. Like, right. I mean, it's a puddle for a reason. Let's just walk into it. Speaking of somebody on the Slack channel, and oh, I don't right. remember who did it. They put up a YouTube video. Where they got this dude standing next to a pretty innocuous looking puddle, right? And he jumps in there and disappears. Right. <laughs> that's why you don't. That's why you don't step into a puddle. Yeah. You don't know how deep that thing is. It was amazing. Yeah, but come on, dude. Like you've walked down that street before. It's not like it was me visiting the city for the first time there in London and being like, "Oh, there's I've this." I've never walked down that street before. What are you That's talking about? Saying. These are people that are out for lunch. Like they, you're, by- you're assuming that they've walked this path before, man. Whatever. You don't know that. <laughs> yeah, if they're wearing flip flops, you might want to skip that puddle because you don't want to get athlete's foot. Oh uh, yeah, gross. I've already got 
athlete's feet. These things are <laughs> I've fast. had it for years. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> oh my god! Oh well. What was the What was the TV show that we were talking about earlier? Oh, uh, you wouldn't tell me the name of it. Oh, no, I wouldn't. Would I? <laughs> <laughs> Dang, that's helpful. <laughs> well, that's, maybe you should have told me, huh? Uh, yeah. Okay. Remind me next time to tell you. <laughs> oh, well, so much for that idea. Yep. Uh, there right. was something else I was going to bring up, too. Well, I really got to start writing these things down. <laughs> that you're on gauge. Wait, what? <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Can't hear me, can you? <laughs> that, uh, you know, <laughs> we were out drinking. Hey, <laughs> like, watch it there. <laughs> the drums were so loud. Uh, oh, man. All right, so here we go. Moving into the last sections. Judgment. Uh, yes, judgment. I, did Did you feel kind of like you, know, you were reading about the Terminator when you got into the judgment section? A little bit. You know? A little bit. So how to trade off quality against development time. <laughs> Now, in the copy, um, <laughs> I, I like how we're already like this is already a joke, right? You just you just go write it and hope it's quality. There's no trade off. You got to get it done. This got to be done yesterday. Now, oh, this will be. No, we awesome. talked about project plans. Do you plan on cutting corners ahead of time, or do you wait until the last minute? <laughs> I, mean, I think it's best to, to identify a few areas that you probably know that you're going to skimp on ahead of time <laughs> and uh, set the priority appropriately. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it starts off comical, but it, he makes the point of saying, like, you know, you may be asked to trade off quality to speed the development of a project in a way that offends your engineering sensibilities. And I'm like, Wow, you're not going to... Hold on. First off, it's not a you may be asked. Yeah. It's like, a, <laughs> this is... You're going to be asked this every time. This is like death or taxes. Like, this is, guaranteed. this is a once every a day, day thing. Yeah. 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 You're, this is, get used to this one. Yep. Oh, man. That's amazing. <laughs> now, did the copy that you guys read have the quote from Ninja Programmer? From, like, say again? Ninja Programmer? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, I just thought sla- that there was the, a reference to Slashdot. Ninja dot. Programmer at Slashdot? Yep. Yeah, although I will say that Slashdot uh, shows the age again, which I, I'm fond of saying that. Sorry, Robert. I don't know why I'm a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, you know, for anyone that gets the Commander Taco reference, how's that? Oh, yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, he, he says that, you know... Uh, if this happens to you, that you should inform your team and clearly explain the cost of this decrease in quality. <laughs> best to do this at lunch, the by be- the way. The, well, no. The best way to describe that is just because it's just to say this is our standard. <laughs> <laughs> Although he did say something that I didn't really agree with, and he's like, "Good design will help uh, offset poor code implementation." And I was like, "Yeah, I don't really." see that either i mean yeah design can help a little bit and it can aid in having better code but i mean bad code is just bad code like there's really not much you can do about it except well, fix it i mean i kind of did understand i kind of 
it, I'm not sure if this is necessarily the, the to the degree that he meant, but when I read that, I kind of took it to mean that, well, okay, let's say, for example, you need to write a factory and maybe you didn't implement it in the best way possible, but the fact that you implemented that factory and now it's in use, at least we can refactor the factory, right? Okay, maybe. So, so to make it more efficient without being a big overhaul to the entire application. Okay, maybe. Right? Yeah. So at least that was the way I read it. Yeah. I mean, the the fact is this entire title, how to decide – no, wait. Where, where, where did it go? Sorry. Um, the how to trade off quality against development time. It's a fact of life, period. It's just going to happen. There's nothing you can do. You got to do the best you can with the time you have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, funny. It's, it's so true. It's horrible that we laughed about it, but I mean, it's literally, <laughs> it's, it's what it is. Yeah. I'm more interested in coping strategies for this. And I do think that going to, to lunch and kind of passing around the wine stick is a good way to get a, to deal with this. You basically, you tell your horror story and then, uh, you know, the person sitting next to you tells theirs and you just go around the circle over and over until you're uh, late getting back to work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he says, you know, if it's going to affect it, if the quality trade-off is going to affect it, then affect the QA effort, then be sure to tell your boss, be sure to tell the QA team. But I do think it's a good idea to have like some sort of note in the ticket, like here's how we could have did it. And here's how I did do it. Well, that's in the get commit statements, right? <laughs> Right. Well, I still feel like, like that's a little bit uh, passive aggressive, though. If you do that, that's like, true. It, it could be passive aggressive depending on the situation, right? Like, especially if it was, you know, a bitter. Going back to the previous, you know, conversation, like, you know, if, if this is a a bitter choice that was made, you know, and and you make some comments like that, it might not necessarily be uh, well received. Yeah, and I do think uh, you know there is a way you can kind of reframe what they mean by what you know what you mean by quality, redefine quality to match uh, what you're doing, and basically uh, you know we we talk a lot of times about like minimum viable products and MVPs, and if you think about things as um, you know basically doing what you need to do to get the feature out, and then kind of iterating if it's necessary, and you know not spending time on things that you may not need, then you know those can be trade offs that are worth getting that item shipped sooner. Um, but that's um, a pretty rosy view, I think. <laughs> but pretty accurate. I'd say extremely accurate. Yeah. Were, were you going to make some comment or reference to the Ninja Programmer or uh, quote or just the fact that it was dating the article because it was slashed up? Uh, you know, just me being a, a jerk about it being dating. Uh, although we did kind of reference it. it basically, the quote... Um, was uh, remembering that good design will be resilient against poor code implementations. And now, as Alan said, it kind of depends on what you mean by design. You know, if it means that there's a couple of bad methods, yeah, that's easy to replace. But if, you know, design is a really good user story, then that's really not going to protect you too much against, uh, you know, the kind of implementation that might be behind it. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, other than... To say that it was it was nice that there was some comic relief in the essay. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's move on to how to manage software system dependence. Well, 
the 12 factor app i don't know i feel like we've discussed some of this we have and 12 factor app with uh with the managing of the dependencies was a nice <clears throat> overview of that the one thing i did like that he pointed out was try to <gasps> encapsulate right portions of it so that if you need to swap out systems you can right sometimes easier said than done. Like you're not going to just switch from SQL server to Oracle. Like that's not going to happen. Not easily anyways, but you know, there might be other things that, you know, there's patterns for it, like the facade pattern or adapter patterns or that kind of thing to where, you know, you can build things to where it's easier to swap out components. So, yeah, I mean, to a degree. Okay. So I do agree with that. And, I know that all three of us, we've definitely done this before. Um, you know, I've seen your pull requests. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've also, you know, there have been times even when I've done it that I've felt like, well, this is speculative programming. It is. Right. Right. And and so that's the one downside. Is like, well, how realistic do you think that you're going to swap that out? Do you really think it's going to swap it out? Like, yeah, that's, that's a tough one to weigh. You know. Um, well, speaking but, of weighing, uh, oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the one last point here was that uh, you know he makes the point of saying that it, encapsulating this does not translate to portability. Right. Right. Those are two separate concepts. But the make, but the encapsulation may make the porting easier. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to point out. Um, <clears throat> An interesting sentence here saying that the source having the source code for a component decreases the risk by a factor of four, um, which I thought was a pretty interesting number. And the copy I'm reading didn't really have a, a good reference for that. Yeah, it didn't in mine either. And I was wondering where that number came from. Um, and it almost felt like this kind of belonged, that, that that sentence and paragraph kind of belonged to the uh, um, managing third party software risk section, right? Like, um, but yeah, that was like a weird statistic that just came out. Like, did you just pull that out of thin air? I don't even know that that's completely valid either. I mean, yeah, <laughs> the the number is seems kind of, yeah, I don't know, made up. But I mean, so tell me this: if you had the source code for SQL Server, is that going to reduce your your you know risk factor? No, of course not. You're not going to go looking at that. So it depends on define risk is one thing like you're you're if this is an open source project where you can actually contribute and make changes to because in your sql server example then you're not going to make the change you're you're at the mercy of when microsoft does a release um well i guess you could compile it yourself you could if you yeah. wanted to but um if you want to to make the change if you found um a bug then your ability to correct that bug could be could have a major impact in the um, usability or safety or protection of whatever your application is or does to make it you know still a usable thing. Yep. So yeah, having that source code could definitely reduce your risk if you're going at it from that point of view. It might take you some time, uh, and and I would actually assume that it would take you a lot of time, right? To go in and understand that source code, you know, having been completely green to it, you know, having no idea about it, you're just going to like dig into it for the first time trying to find like, okay, where's the entry point 
and and try to solve your one uh random problem you know it I, yeah that that's where the the increase by risk of four kind of questions because it seems like well or or you know increase the it might decrease the risk by a factor of four but the time is going to increase by a factor of 10. Right. I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm Hard to that say. It depends up, on how big the project is, right? Yeah. That you're working with. I mean, but, you brought up the, the um, GLibC example earlier referring to the eight-year-old defect um, you know, in the DNS that's been there for eight years. Mm-hmm. It's gone unnoticed. Yep. Like, you know, so depending on how big that library is, it could definitely hide. Well, one thing I did like, and it was right here at the tail end of this, was they talked about if you do, like, let's say you are working on some third party, you have a new Git package or something from, you know, some Git repo out there, and you find a bug and you fix that bug, great, you've moved your project forward. You probably should try and push that bug fix out so that it can be updated in that project. You know, put in a pull request to have it updated in the project because here's what's going to happen if you don't in a lot of cases. That thing is going to diverge from what you have locally, and now you're having to try and maintain your local copy with any other bug fixes they've done remotely that don't include your fix. And that becomes, we've actually done this before, it becomes a mess trying to deal with a a repo that has diverged from what you have locally. And, you know, so in most cases, if it's not against your company's policy you probably should put in a pull request to try and get that bug fix put into the main product yeah now that's where it becomes a headache though when the company policy is that like no you can't contribute to that project or it has to go you your your code change has to go under review by a legal team to make sure that you're not divulging any company secrets that's when things are frustrating to say the least i mean you understand their intent yep but it doesn't make your frustration any less and it can actually cause you a lot of for lack of a better term technical debt down the road because like i said when those things diverge and you need the the fixes or the updates or whatever they've done now you've got to manually hand jam code into what you have locally and that's well it feels like Policies like that in in a company kind of make the I don't I almost want to call it lethargic, but I'm not sure that doesn't that feels kind of like the wrong way to describe it. But when when you hinder your your developers' abilities to contribute to an open source project, to even if it's fixing a problem a bug in a package that you're using, but in order to do it, you have to go through you know a legal review you're just disincentivizing people to bother with it. Right. Because they're going to look at it and be like, oh, it's too much hassle. And it's going to cause me a headache <clears throat> down the road, yeah. And and could you imagine if you had to do that, like if it was a one-line commit? Right. And you're like, you know, one, one line. Like, and it could happen. <laughs> I mean, it, it totally can happen that way. So, yeah. But I do think that's important if you can update the update the original source. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's move on. How to decide if software is too... Immature. Um, well, you, you can tell by the jokes it makes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they're all American pie-ish. Um, you know, I don't really think about software being too immature, but I do think about frameworks being too immature. I thought he was going to call me out. I was going to be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally Co-workers. Agree. Angular 2 is a perfect example for me right now. 
Like I've tried to mess with that. I don't know how many times over the past six months and it's too immature. It's, it's just not there. The documentation isn't ready. There's not enough good fully baked examples. Like it's just, it's hard to get behind it. <laughs> well, there's this great one liner in here though, that he says that is, uh, you know, using software other people wrote is one of the most effective ways to quickly build a solid system. Hmm. Yeah, and you think about it though. It's true. It's that's the way. I mean, we've joked about JavaScript, right? And all the different frameworks and package managers and everything, all the tooling that's required, right? And 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 as as funny as it may sound, and as true as it may be. But at the end of the day, when when you're done with that, like you wouldn't have wanted to code all that yourself, right? So think of all you know. Once you do take the the time and that you take that initial hit and investment in getting it set up, after the fact, now things are going to roll more smoothly for you. So, yeah. I mean, a lot of these points, I mean, just real quick, is it Vapor? If it is, obviously, you don't want to deal with it. Is there an accessible body of lore about the software? Basically, do people talk about it on the Internet, right? Uh, are you the first user? If you are, it's probably a bad idea. Is there a strong yep. incentive for continuation? That's usually a pretty good uh, indicator of whether or not it's mature enough. Has it had a maintenance effort? Is there anybody actually supporting this thing? That's That's a good one. Will it survive defection of the current maintainers? Eh, I mean, how, how can, would anything, right? I mean, I don't know. That one That one seems a little superficial. Uh, is there a seasonal well, alternative? Well, I guess, I guess what they mean by there, though, is if it's, uh, if the maintainers, if it's a small group of maintainers and it's like they, they just have all of the tribal knowledge around it. Okay, yeah. And then they move off to something else, then basically that project just died. Yeah. Right? Maybe that would work. Is there a seasoned alternative at least half as good? That's a viable thing to think about. Is it known to your tribe or company? Probably important. Is it desirable to your tribe or company? Also probably important. Well, if Very it's not important. known or desirable, then why do you even care to use it? Now, number 10 is probably the one that I find the most difficult. Can you hire people to work on it even if it is bad? So... This is one of the projects that I was leading previously. I ended up going with Angular because I actually spoke to recruiters and people in the industry and said, hey, what kind of people can I get to work on this project? Well, is yeah, it, it was several technologies they were throwing right. out. There were several technologies I was looking at, and they're like, look, Angular, you're going to be able to find people. Man, it's <laughs> it's <laughs> they weren't wrong. They weren't wrong. You, you found you found people. You get tons of resumes for Angular experts, right? And this is what's frustrating, I think, in general in our industry, is, yeah, you get them in-house, and it's like, you don't know how to do this? Like, what do you mean you don't know how to do this? This is like, where you got to be careful about the questions you ask. So you asked <laughs> if I could find people. Right. You didn't yeah. ask, could you find good people? No, I'm sure I did. Right. <laughs> but, no, I mean, that's... You can you can do what you think is all the legwork to figure out if you're going after the right thing, and you still may not get to the right place. I mean, it, it's hard to do that. It's it's the same problem that everybody has when they're trying to hire developers. Trying to judge whether or not that person actually has a good body of knowledge coming in is hard to determine in a lot of cases, especially if you're trying to hire fast. So, um, yeah. 
Yeah, so let's move on to the next section, which is how to make a buy versus build decision. And you know, very quickly, he goes on to make the point that we should probably rephrase this this cliche uh, term, right? Rather than saying calling a buy versus build, because if you if you do that, then you're automatically um, making it sound like you're throwing out open source alternatives, right? Because right. you're not buying those. So, you know, instead he's saying like, well, what if we were to call this and then obtain and integrate versus build here and integrate decision, right? And the integrate part that that that's a key part of this process, yep. right? Yep. It doesn't, you know, yeah, you might be able to buy something. And you know there might be a software package that does something and does it beautifully, but integrating with it might be a nightmare, or you know add a lot of complexity and maybe even you know eighty percent of the features of that thing that you're going to buy are fantastic that you really have no intention of using. So why are you bothering to take the hit on the integration time with it if you're really not going to use all of those features? But also keep in mind, we talked about this a while back in the licensing. And just because something is quote unquote free doesn't mean there aren't ramifications to that. So you need to be aware if you are looking at open source. And and by all means, I love open source. It's amazing. But you need to be aware of the licenses. If you go and do a GPLv3 thing, you're now going to be potentially liable to open source all your code, which could be your potential trade secret in whatever software you're writing. So that's one thing to consider when you're looking at open source and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about open source licensing before. We don't understand it at all, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, if you want to go back and listen to that, that's episode five. We still don't understand open source licensing and um, enjoy that. But some of the important parts here, and I'm assuming probably all three of us have worked on integration projects with third-party software that you either obtain or whatever. Don't you always? I mean, isn't that like every software project? Just about, right? But one of the key parts that I thought that he pointed out that I full-heartedly agree with is the, if you're not going to be willing to put you know, X amount of time into evaluating it properly, like maybe 30 days or, or, or 60 days or whatever, then maybe you shouldn't even be considering it. Right. Yeah. I definitely, I don't, I like that a lot. Yeah. If it's not worth you spending that much time researching it, then yeah, then it sounds like you've already kind of made your mind up or you're going to make a flagrant decision. Yeah. You, you, if yeah. you are not making a well-informed decision, it could be a very bad decision. Well, he may, he makes a similar point back in the, um, section on managing third-party software risks about, you know, if you're going to consider using this, then you have to devote devote energy early in the process to evaluating it. Yes. So. Yeah, there were a couple of quick bullet points here. I was going to go over about like um, some of the things you know that he uh, calls out in this this decision process of build and integrate versus build here and in, uh, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that the obtain and integrate versus build here and integrate decision. 
And those were, well, how well do your needs match those for which it was designed? Uh, what portion of what you buy will you need, which is kind of what I mentioned where if, you know, you're only using 20% of it. What is the cost of evaluating the integration? What is the cost of the integration? Will buying increase or decrease long-term maintenance costs? Will building it put you in a business position you don't want to be in? Which is also a great point, yep. right? Like if if your business is selling T-shirts, right? You don't need to write your own database software. Da- writing database software is not what you do. Which is kind of interesting, though, when you consider companies like, for example, an Amazon, where you know they made an entire business out of cloud, right? Before mm-hmm. it was even talked about, but yet they were in the business of selling products. You know, getting, you know, basically it was kind of like a logistics thing: Get, buying stuff cheap, getting it shipped to the customer cheap, and then here are these other examples where it's like. Hey, uh, well, what if we sell them some of our compute time? Yeah, we have some leftover resources. Right. What can we do with this? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to how to grow professionally. The very first sentence here. Assume responsibility in excess of your authority. So true. I mean, probably the biggest way to stand out right is is make yourself a bigger part of whatever you're doing you know stand out take responsibility for things you know take on a greater role it is a big deal it's amazing how many people are like well how can i get promoted act like you need it right act like you want it well act like you have it yeah yeah treat it like it's yours yeah, I think Amazon had like a weird rule where you were supposed to be doing the job for a year before you actually got the promotion or something. But um, that that seems a bit extreme, but it is kind of interesting to think that um, you actually kind of need to be doing the job before you get it. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to the cliche, you know, fake it until you make it. Right. Kind of uh, mindset. But it did kind of bring up a question of like, well... Okay, so it says, assume responsibility in excess of your authority, right? That, that's the line you pulled out. Mm-hmm. But what if, what if, like, you have no desire to move into, like, a management position, right? Yeah. Like, what if, you want to stay technical, and you want to go as far up whatever your company's technical chain allows for, right? But, but... And if that does include managing some people, then maybe that's okay. But as long as you're still technical, you don't want to move into a management position for the sake of moving into a management position. Then it's well, how do you not? Right? You're like you can't you can't assume responsibility above your your authority in that case because you don't want it. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. I mean, because a lot of people get pushed into that, right? Like. You become the the lead on your team, and then the next move is management, and that's not what you wanted, right? Um, well, it sounds like in that case there there isn't a role there that you desire. There's not a you know a position that exists yet for what you want. Yeah, that might be possible, and or true. Yeah, depending on the situation. It, man, that that's such a hard one. I because, guess I'm thinking of like, uh, sorry to interrupt, but like 
you know, um, I believe at Microsoft the most technical position they have is a fellow, right? And and I believe that was the same way at IBM too. It was like you know, fellow. Once you got to that level, like that was as high as you could be technically, um, and, and still be in a very technical you know role within the company, right? So, you know, if your company has that type of path for you, then great, right? You can keep going to that. But if your company doesn't have that, if you're in a smaller company and, and you know, which is the majority of the companies in the world, I think you move. I think, I mean, it, it depends, right? Like, and that's such a hard one because I've definitely seen HR structures where it's exactly what you're talking about. Like once you get to a certain point, they've, maybe it's not a company that's based around technology. So they don't have those paths laid out. And you really have two options. You either stay exactly where you are or you explore outside that company and you look for a place that gets you closer to what you're looking for, right? And that's a tough one because you might love that company, but there's no room for growth in what you want to do. And I I don't know a great answer to that. I I really don't. Mm, Yeah, that's definitely uh, not so sure I like your answer. (laughs) <laughs> I, I I mean, honestly, what do you do? I, in some cases, HR will take a look and say, okay, we, we do need to add another position that, that you can fit into, right? Like that can happen. And that means that you need to have open communication with your HR and your boss and whoever else may be involved in that decision. But I mean, in, in a lot of cases, it seems like the the whole thing is, especially in corporate America, you do get pushed into management. And if you want to be a coder, that's not what you want to be doing. Right. And that's that's a really tough one. Yeah, I mean, we're engineers after all because we like to solve problems, you know, technical problems. Yeah. So, all right. And, you know, um, if you're not growing professionally and you are also, you know, there's nowhere to go professionally and you are so, you also aren't pushing yourself technically then, you know, Scott Hanselman always likes to talk about, like, are you getting another year experience or are you having the same year, you know, X times or the same year's worth of experience X times? Interesting. So, um, you know, sometimes you do have to think about what that means. And it's, you know, you can talk to your boss about it, figure out um, there might be something you could do or kind of change that role or create that role to something that better suits you and where you want to go. Well, I guess I guess here's the way I could sum this up where, where I took issue with this section was that um, – you know, growing professionally doesn't necessarily mean, you know, changing your title. Right. 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 It doesn't necessarily mean assuming the responsibilities of, you know, whatever title is above you. Right. Right. And, and faking it until you make it. It could just mean, you know, being a better version of you. Right. You know, in, in learning new techniques and new skills and continuing to, you know, master your craft and introspection right constantly evaluate yourself am i doing a better job am i getting better at communication am i getting better at you know managing my time whatever It, it could be a ton of things but actually reflecting on what you're doing as a person is 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 useful and maybe you even need outside help to find out hey am i doing a better job you know talk to maybe your team members or or whatever that can be helpful. I mean, yeah, all those things can help you grow prof- professionally. Yeah. All right. So, how to evaluate interviewees? Huh. 
Man, I'll tell you what. Yeah, did we talk about this? We have several times. This this is so hard. <laughs> um, yeah. Look, there was there was a statement here that I highlighted. Candidates are no more honest with interviewers than they are with themselves, and the human capacity for self deception is astonishing. That's awesome. It is so true, so true. You know, oh man, I know everything about sequel. Oh, oh really? All right, <laughs> yeah. Here we go. You know, it, mm. it, interviewing is probably one of the hardest things to do because, unfortunately, you're putting somebody on the spot, and, and so you're kind of playing God to a certain degree, right? Like, you're judging these people in a short amount of time, and that's frustrating. The best you can do is try and assess them in the best possible way for the role they're fitting. And this is one of the things that frustrates me about some of the big companies like like uh, the Googles, the Amazons, the the Microsofts, like they may interview every single software engineer exactly the same. Like they're going to have to be these mathematicians, right? But when you get the role, you, you know, you're, you're plopping HTML on the screen. Oh, right. We you talked know, about that before. Yeah, and, and so my my take on interviewing and how to assess somebody is come up with real world, real world problems that you're solving and what you're doing and try and give them to them in a way that they are almost open-ended questions and see where they take them, you know? Yeah, there were a couple of points here that he made that one of them was evaluate their ability to learn, right? But I kind of felt like that one was a difficult one, too, to assess because time like, teaching is... I mean, that that that, that sounds like te- what teachers do, mm-hmm. right? Is, you know... They relay information and then they evaluate how well you, you know, they, they give you ways of testing you on that information and then try to evaluate how well you did it. That's teaching is definitely a skill set in and of itself. Um, that, it, you know, you either, it's not something that you just immediately have, but, um, you know, it, he goes on to say that, uh, you know, how well people communicate and work. Uh, is more important than being up to date on the latest programming language. That one I really liked um, because you know, how well you can communicate with that person and and work with them is huge. Yeah. Right. Like. Yeah. Uh, okay. So so they know Go. Right. If you're not using Go, it doesn't matter. Yep. I mean, yeah, they're staying up to date. So that's that's nice, but. What's it going to be like day to day working with this guy in whatever your tech stack is or gal? And then uh, another point that he has here was that, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, one of the readers of his, his essay had mentioned that he had good luck using take home tests for the interview. E. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, I, I've done one of those before and only one because um, th- there was another time when I was asked to do one and it just, you know, I don't want to spend four hours, you know, kind of auditioning for your company if I don't like the company or if, I, if I'm not, you know, already really sold and really passionate about working there. And, you know, maybe that's uh, an important distinction. You know, maybe you only want to hire people that are really passionate about working there. But if you write kind of like standard line of business, 
you know, kind of boring business applications, then you're going to have a hard time finding people who are going to, you know, want to spend their nights and weekends working on your take home test. You know, I guess in that situation, well, you're here's the you thing I liked about this, you. this section is that it takes some of the stress away from it, right? So, so the interviewee isn't sitting in a stressful situation where let's be, let's be honest. Like it's a hostile situation as, yeah. a, as the interviewee you're sitting, you're sitting in unfamiliar territory with unfamiliar people. And then you're being hit with a barrage of questions, right? That's a hostile kind of environment. And with the take home, you know, test for the interviewee, you're removing that you're letting them go back to their comfort zone Right and relax for a moment and just solve the problem. And at the and when it's over, you get to evaluate. Well, a are they able to solve the problem? B, how well did they solve it? it do I like what 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 I see here? Are are these good patterns? Is this horrible patterns? Like you automatically get an idea of what that type of developer is right away. And if they don't solve the problem, then well, why didn't they solve the problem? But to Joe's point, right, like now you took what is typically a one to two hour interview and you've turned it into a six to eight hour for the guy that's doing it. And there's value to that. And maybe if the person wants it bad enough, it's it's important to do. I, I mean, that's within each person to do. But I definitely see from the interviewer's perspective how that can be helpful, right? Like you get to see oh, yeah. a lot about how a person thinks and how they organize things and and just how neat or sloppy or, well, or whatever, like their, their attention to detail can come through. Right. And let's be clear though, this could all happen. This take home interview could happen before you've even met them. Absolutely. It could. So they could look at this and automatically know whether or not they're even interested in coming in the door. So whether they even use your time or not. Right. Right. Because if they see the type of questions that are coming here, they're like, Oh man, I don't, this is way above me, right? right? Then they'll just immediately, you know, cancel and not bother. Right. Right. So you're already weeding out some people before you even wait. You know, I hate to say it as waste time, but you know, before you even take the first moment to talk to them. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, that could be a bad thing too, right? You know, you could be weeding out good candidates because you know, they aren't going to be able to do that. You know, they got plans for the next couple of nights or, or whatever. And so, you know, you may be searching for employees for you know with a certain skill set and only be finding one or two, and now you might be scaring them off. You know, um, yeah, I mean that that's true with you know if they have plans coming up, and I would I would think that you'd be flexible enough that if some, if they were to be honest with you and say, hey, look, um, you know, I, I have plans, you know. Uh, whatever they may be, I'm not going to be available. I'm not going to have any free time in the evenings or this weekend or whatever the case may be uh, until, you know, X, Y, Z, which realistically, you know, you, if you wouldn't expect that to be, uh, you know, maybe a week at most, right. You yeah. know, a few days plus a weekend. Um, so I would, I would think that you could be flexible enough that you could be like, okay, fine. You know, when you, when you are back, in town or, or when your free time is available, let me know. And then I'll send you the, the, uh, homework assignment. And then, you know, we'll schedule your interview for the next day. Right. 
that would be part of scheduling the interview, I would think. Yep. Yeah. I just remember um, on the like the test that I was given, it's like they gave me a couple of, or the the one that I didn't take, I didn't end up doing. They gave me a couple of days. I was like, oh, you know, I'm not gonna be able to do that. I'm not gonna be able to work on this till Sunday night. And they're like, okay, well, just you know, Monday's fine. And then when Sunday night it come around, it's like, well, I've been working, I've been you know busy kind of all weekend. Now it's finally Sunday night, and uh, I just don't want to do this. I don't, I, you know, I don't care enough about this job to do this anymore. So you'd rather just sit there in the in the interview there. Well, I just I think it's um, depends on whether it's a buyer's or seller's market. You know, I just for me, I didn't want to spend my Sunday night. You know, uh, especially like I tend to kind of overthink. And if you know, if you tell me I have four hours to do something like. Then I start thinking like, oh, you know, I don't want to do it, too, you know, too pragmatically because then you're going to think I don't know design patterns, but I don't want to go too nuts because you're going to think I spent, you know, all weekend on it. And so I get kind of stuck in this, um, you know, kind of trap of, you know, stress that where I am not really sure just how much to do or not. So I don't really like taking take home tests. So I think I'm put off whenever I um, you know, whenever that's an option. If it's too so, open-ended basically is what it boils down to. Like you don't know what to expect or, or what yeah. they're expecting. It so sounds like I'm really looking for that job. It's like, yeah, it sounds like you need to focus on how to balance brevity versus abstraction. <laughs> that's right. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, the, the tests I've seen so far, um, the two that I've done, like we're both supposed to be done in around four hours, which is, it's a good chunk of time, especially for, you know, especially in the school evening. night. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right, let's move on to how to know when to apply fancy computer science. <laughs> when hands touch the keyboard. Oh, when hands <laughs> touch the keyboard, okay. Yeah. Well, there there you go. You guys keep uh, graph paper by your desk so you can work out some equations? Oh, you got it. How are you yeah. working? Uh, Proof by I, induction? I think all the big O uh, notation is commented in the... Uh, in the comments, like, you know, hey, we're about to go in log of n. I definitely think there are times when, um, especially the, like the traveling salesman problem tends to come up, or you have some sort of scheduling algorithm or something that you need. And I definitely think it's a good time to kind of crack open the book and look at the algorithm. But uh, that kind of stuff doesn't seem to happen too often. But if you find yourself trying to really design like a big algorithm, then I think it's, you know, it's a good time to kind of look at what's out there and you might find some really good solutions for something or if something you're doing is just taking too long um, then you might uh, try a little googling yeah i mean there were some great comments here i mean the the sad fact is is that for the majority developers a lot of the as he puts it fancy computer science is is just going to be stuff that you're going to rarely use more often than not. And I know I know what your gut reaction is as you're listening to me say that. You're like, "Whoa, whoa, that's not true. I am smart. I know my stuff." And but come on. How many times have you had to just like change some fonts or change some colors or move something 10 pixels? Like that just happens. And you know, it's important it's an important part of the product overall too. So it's not always going to be you know, complex math that you're working on or, you know, I can't fancy computer science, <laughs> but, um, you know, he goes on to say that, that, you know, in practice, this is wonderful stuff. That's just too complicated and generally unnecessary. It's kind of fair. I mean, it's complicated, but unnecessary. 
Well, depending. So he did, in what you're saying there, if a well-isolated algorithm that uses a slightly fancy algorithm can decrease hardware cost or increase performance by a factor of two across an entire system, then it would be criminal not to consider it. Right. So that's that's a good example, right? Yeah. Like if you can improve performance by a factor of two by doing some fancy algorithm, then yeah, you should. Well, I mean, he he makes another example that too that like there's no point in improving an algorithm when most of your time is spent making inefficient database calls. Agreed. So okay, fine. But what if what if you are working on let's say the Linux kernel? Or the Windows kernel, right? Like, inefficient database calls are probably not your bottleneck. Right. Right? So, but but I guess this is where maybe the generally unnecessary comes in or, you know, rarely used because, like, well, how many people are actually working on the Linux kernel? That's the thing, right? right? Like, if you are one of those guys, then this might be necessary, right? Because you're writing the core of a system. Okay? That's a little bit different. If you're writing software that's using generally available libraries out there, then probably it's not as big of a deal. Yeah. And so, like, if your application involves a web browser, then <laughs> we're probably talking to you. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I there, mean, there's I so agree. many other factors there. So I have a buddy who works for Amazon that works in the networking stuff. And Amazon will buy basically commodity hardware, like no-name hardware, because they can buy it for dirt cheap and they can put it in their systems. He actually has to help program the algorithms on how to make the most efficient route from point A to point B. Okay, he has to do fancy stuff. They have a bunch of doctorates. Well, that's the traveling salesman problem you're talking about. Right, and that's what I'm saying. So in that case, they actually do have a need for doing fancy things because they're trying to make these the most efficient they can through software abstraction, right? And so, so yeah, depending on your job role, yeah, if you're writing web page or web applications, yeah, this probably isn't going to matter that much. If you're writing low-level hardware drivers and stuff, yeah, probably so, right? Like, it, if NVIDIA comes out with a new card, it, right now the 980 Ti is like the creme de la creme, right? They come out with the 1080 Ti next year, you better believe that the software engineers that are working on the hardware drivers are going to try and squeeze every bit of performance right. out of that thing, right? So it depends on your job role. So so let's let's say that applying fancy computer science, let's say that uh, the closer you are to the actual hardware, the more likely you are to need it. Is that a fair statement? I'd say that's probably very accurate the further away the further you are abstracted away from that so to the point to you're in a web browser for example then chances are it's not going to come in as often it may come in i'm not saying that it won't i'm just saying that it's not going to be a part of your daily routine i'd say i'd say if you amended that as well to where depending on so not just the hardware, but the type of hardware, right? Like we're we're mostly thinking in terms of computers, but if you're thinking of like IoT devices to where it doesn't have a lot of memory and a lot of, you know, CPU processing and that kind of stuff, then maybe there you have to worry about that kind of stuff too, right? Um, but yeah, I would say generally speaking, if you're writing applications for like a computer, 
it may not be that big of a deal, right? It's more important about how it functions as opposed to the most crazy, um, fancy. Right. Well, by the way, um, you made the point of saying about the Amazon using the commodity hardware. They are not the only ones. Like oh, I'm sure. Google, Google, uh, you know, famously, maybe, questionly. Like I remember there was a, a video or picture of uh, one of their first systems that Google started out on way back in like 98 or something like that, 99, where it was the case was built out of like Duplo box <laughs> blocks. Awesome. That's yeah. amazing. Um, so, all right. How to talk to non-engineers. Well, first you get a podcast. No. <laughs> uh, um, no, cause everybody's engineers that listens to this. That's right. Actually, um, we, uh, some of us, uh, you outlaw and I saw a talk on something sim- similar at the security conference that landed B sides and the talk was called, uh, the art of speaking with muggles. And I think it was a great talk. It was it was coming from a security perspective, but it's basically the same thing. And it talked a lot about the kinds of things that people are wanting to hear from you, and the the, the kinds of things that they care about, and focusing on you know communicating effectively in a way that they can understand, and not um, getting lost in kind of the the details and um, going off in the weeds. And so I, uh, we're gonna have a link to that in the show notes. Well, he definitely gets kind of opinionated in this section, though that. Um, you know, like, where was it? Thou shall not use a shorthand. Or are you talking about the non-engineers are smart, but not as grounded in creating technical things as we are? Yeah, there was that kind of mindset. And, and, he, and this wasn't the first section that it was like this either, but, um, you know, he says that engineers and programmers are generally recognized in popular culture as being different. So I'm not sure if he meant like smart or just dorky. Um, but yeah, then, then he goes on to say that non, non-engineers are not as grounded, uh, in creating technical things. And he also said, assume that you will miscommunicate, be aware of your miscommunications. I think that's a good point. Uh, you know, a lot of times we, we're talking about intimate knowledge we have. And so it comes across in a way that maybe, you know, they take a different way and it's not accurate. I know that I have definitely been guilty of this in the past where maybe there's some topic where I'll get very passionate about it and very excited about it. And I will start talking about it and maybe just assume that everyone in earshot is on the same level as me and following everything I say. And then after speaking for some period of time, they look at me and they're like, I don't know what you just said, kid, but whatever it was, right on. <laughs> and you're like, kind of hurt because you're like, well, I just spent all this time. I thought you were with me. What happened? <laughs> I, it's it's definitely something that you have to practice at because being so close to the details sometimes is it's hard to back off of that. You know, oh, yeah. Come out instead of that one foot view coming out to that 10,000 foot view and being able to speak at that level. Mm-hmm. It's a skill and it's something that, that requires some crafting. So, and it's important. It's, it's so important. That's the reason why there are people that, that end up being the liaisons between, you know, business people and engineers because some people can't make that leap. So, it's a it's a tough thing to uh, 
to do properly and effectively. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll let you know uh, as soon as I figure it out. <laughs> I guess I'm still an intermediate programmer because uh, I uh, have problems with this one as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's like one that we just forever have to work on. Yep. Yeah. I think a bad, sometimes like I'll say something like, this is going to take forever to do. And they think maybe that means either, um, you know, I'm going to go spend forever tonight and do it. (laughs) 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 When I meant uh, there's no way that I'm going to do this. Uh, Well, here's a a test for you. Um, I think there's like a subreddit on the, uh, like uh, explain it to me like I'm five. Oh, yeah. E-L-I-5. If you ever think that you are perfect at, talking to non-engineers explain it to a five-year-old yeah and see if you uh see how well you you got them to understand interesting right all right well that was uh this evening's take on how to be an intermediate programmer uh which is we'll, we'll have links in the show notes to um uh the the book by or essay by Robert L. Reed and uh what else what are the resources we like here? Uh the the book uh the book essay whatever <laughs> also mentioned an essay by Paul Graham, Succinctness is power and I thought that was a good one. Oh, so yeah, uh, I did have got that a link one. to that. I had that I had that one uh marked too. Good call. All right. Well let's get into Alan's favorite part of the show the tip of the week it's the tip of the week yeah i've actually got one that i i can't believe i never thought to look this up prior to maybe a week or two ago so if you work with sql server specifically right now i'm sure all relational database systems have some form of viewing execution plans but i'm currently speaking directly about sql server one of the frustrating things is if you have a just horrible query, and let's say this thing takes 10 minutes to run, which can happen, the execution plan in Management Studio, there's there's a button up there that says show actual execution plan. You can do the show estimated, but I've found that for whatever reason, that thing is not very accurate. So I always do the actual. And what that will do is it will show you what SQL Server is doing behind the scenes to optimize the query. So if you're joining five tables and it's going out and trying to get the rows, it'll tell you, hey, is this thing using an index for this table? If it's not, is it is it doing a table scan? Is it doing a seek of an index? Is it having to do a key lookup? It, it, so it'll tell you all this useful information about how you can go and start attacking this thing to speed up the query. Well, the problem is with that actual execution plan, when you hit run, you have to wait until that thing's done before it'll come back. So 10 minutes later, and after you've hosed the server, you can finally look and see what was going on, only to then try and fix something, run it again, maybe wait another 10 minutes just to do it all over again. So here's what is so cool. There is actually a system table in SQL Server to where you can go query and get an execution plan link that you can click on and it will actually show you the actual execution plan. So I'll read it out real quick, even though it's not going to make a lot of sense. 
So basically, select all from query plan. Uh, uh, no, select query plan from sys.dm underscore exec underscore requests. Cross apply sys.dm underscore exec underscore query underscore plan. Uh, er plan handle where the session ID is whatever SPID that you have. So again, I'll paste this in, but here's the beauty. You have a running thing. You can basically go do, as from a previous episode's tips, you could do an SPHU2 to find out what your SPID is that's running, and you should see it because more than likely it's spanned across multiple lines and you're eating up all the I.O. and, and CPU. You can take that SPID, plug it into this query right here, it will give you back a link that you can click on in the result set, and it will actually open up the image of the execution plan that you can inspect. Now, in fairness, yes. we should we should say, because we've had some comments on, on some of these things being specific, so this is clearly... This is SQL Server. SQL Server specific. Yes, this is, right. that's why I said this will probably... There's probably other things in other database servers that do this, but this is specific to Microsoft SQL Server. And it's absolutely amazing. I used it the other day when, when Outlaw was trying to crash a system. Wait, what? And, and <laughs> Wait, what? I was able to find what was going on, and it was awesome. <laughs> so. I, don't, I don't know why you got to throw me under the bus. <laughs> uh, All right. So, oh, there's a tip you could use, dense rank. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean. Good, but you have one. Never mind. Yeah. All right, so. um. <clears throat> All right, so uh, Alan was trying to give me a tip, but you know what? Joe already did. <laughs> so J- Joe threw out this great um, idea the other day that, uh, you know, I was like, hey, that, that's a beautiful one. One of us should mention it on the show. And it happens to be on one of my favorite topics, Git. So um, let's pretend that there is a file that, uh, you know, you're going to change on your system and you're probably going to change it frequently, but you don't want to commit it, right? It's not it's not something you want to you bother with. And your alternatives is you could just every time you're about ready to put a commit in, just not stage it. So in other words, don't do a git add on that file name, or you could reset the file, or um, you know, or let me rephrase that wording. You could undo your changes by doing a git checkout dash dash on the file once you're done with it. But what if you just want to leave whatever changes you've made to it, but completely ignore it and not have git even try to prompt you to commit or stage this thing, right? So what you can do on that file name is git update dash index space dash dash assume dash unchanged and then the file name right and what that'll do is it'll tell git to just ignore any changes to that file uh and so that it won't prompt you to commit it all right yep they're great for config files if you have those right right so so like um database connection strings maybe you want to point to your own local database or in not whatever was in some configuration that the team was using, whatever, you know, configuration files in general. But um, so the one thing to be aware of though, is that um, 
You know, if you look in the Git documentation on the assume unchanged command, um, Git will fail gracefully in case it needs to modify this file uh, when merging a commit. So you've made a change to it, for example, and you've saved your change, but you didn't commit it because you've told it to assume it's unchanged. So Git hasn't prompted you to commit anything or to stage it. But now when you pull in uh, a remote branch to merge it in to your branch, then, and that file has changed remotely, well, then it's going to show up as a conflict, right? So, uh, and Git's going to tell you in that case. So be aware of that situation, but uh, this is a nice way of being able to just uh, have some local configuration file that you don't have to, um, that you could tailor to your local dev environment needs without having to worry about committing it. So that's a permanent change then? Like if you wanted to add it back to the index, you'd have to run some other <laughs> command, I guess? Um, yeah. If you want to undo it, if you that's a great question. If you want to undo that, so you would do a git space update dash index dash dash no dash assume dash unchanged, and that will unset that um, flag. Cool. Um if I remember right, there was there a way where it would do it automatically? I thought there was. Well, um, but I thought you might be able to add it explicitly, but I've never tried it. Oh, like get add and then the file name? Yep. Interesting. Ah, cool tip. Yep, I love it. Um, speaking of tips, I uh, wanted to give you guys a life pro tip here. Uh, <laughs> take warning. Today, maybe not today, everyone was. It all blends together. Um <laughs> I uh, ignored a JavaScript warning, which uh, turned out to actually be the problem that I was banging my head against the wall for uh, an hour about. <laughs> and it's one of those things like sometimes when you get a couple of warnings, whatever, like you kind of ignore them and you're going to come back to them and whatever. And you, and you don't necessarily notice when a new one kind of slips in there. And so suddenly, um, you know, I realized, wait a second, there's normally only four warnings here. And now there's five. <laughs> and this mysterious issue that I've been solving um, and having no luck on, uh, trying to solve anyway, um, you know, <laughs> slipped in there around the same time and I fixed the warning and fixed the bug. So, um, yeah, just uh, take those warnings seriously. And in Visual Studio and uh, pretty much any code tool, any sort of compiler that you're using, you can actually set usually a flag that will uh, treat warnings as errors and I definitely recommend that because if you don't, you will get warnings. They will be ignored and they will add up. And next thing you know, you'll be missing important things and important changes. So take heed. Cool. All right. So with that, we hope you've uh, you've enjoyed this episode. And uh, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes to turn more using your favorite podcast app. And uh, hey, like Joe mentioned earlier, Please be sure to leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or you know, whatever your platform of choice is. If you haven't already, we really appreciate that. It, it's a surefire way to put a smile on our face when we read those reviews. Yep. Also, contact us with any questions or topics you might have. And visit us at www.codingblocks.net where you can find all our show notes, extremely thorough show notes, examples, discussions, and more. Yeah, and send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at cuttingblocks.net. Uh, join our Slack. Send us, uh, send us your email, and we'll get you in there. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at Coding Blocks. 